Hey, Pernay. Hey, what's up, Tim? What do you think will happen first? The plot of Amazing Grace and Chuck, where Little League players and professional athletes inspire world leaders to dismantle their nuclear arsenals? Or the Cleveland Browns win the Super Bowl? Ah, Tim, I think you're being super critical. Welcome to another episode of the Super Critical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and oftentimes nonsensical way pop culture portrays nuclear weapons. My name is Tim Westmeyer, someone who studies nuclear weapons and works on nuclear security and nonproliferation for a living. My usual podcast co-host Gabe is more of a hockey fan than a basketball fan, so he has to sit on the bench for this episode. But luckily, I am joined over Skype by all-star nuclear policy expert Brene Vadi, fellow in the nuclear policy program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Brene, how you doing? Great, Tim. I am really excited to be at the center of the nexus of nuclear policy and basketball. <laughs> um, and obviously, you're, you're more of a movie buff than I am because I had never heard of this movie. But when I heard about the chance to talk NBA and nuclear weapons, I mean, why not? Well, this is great. I'm, I'm very, very happy to have it. If anyone I could have had on this episode, you're the person at the top of the list. We met working at the State Department for a bit, uh, nuclear security projects, and we bonded over our support for the Los Angeles Lakers. And it is this mix of basketball and nuclear policy expertise that I wanted to have on hand to cover the 1987 movie Amazing Grace and Chuck. This rolls right off the tongue. Amazing <laughs> Grace and Chuck. And a quick little synopsis here. This is where we have a little league pitcher who becomes terrified about nuclear war after a field trip to an ICBM silo, and he decides to boycott baseball unless the world gets rid of nukes. And the story goes viral, inspires an NBA player and other professional athletes to take on the nuclear weapon enterprise at great risk to their reputation, careers, and, spoiler alert, personal well-being. <laughs> so you had not heard of this movie before I recommended it? Yeah, that's right. When you mentioned it to me, I was thinking, well... As like a, a Tom Clancy buff, as somebody who read Ghost Fleet, as mm -hmm. uh, someone who watched all sorts of action and political thriller movies growing up, I had to look this one up. When you told me it was actually on Amazon Prime, and I saw that that was true, I was surprised I didn't hear about one of all. Then I looked into the movie a little bit more, and I was thinking, what has happened to Amazon Prime that they've got <laughs> this movie for rental? I mean, Amazon Prime is basically YouTube, which has a parent with a kid who has a tablet now. You know, yeah. I'm constantly worried about. So I'm glad she hasn't found this movie because I don't know what it would make her do. Anyways, I'm glad you found it because I would never have found it myself. Well, my viewing habits on Amazon Prime have gotten so bad that when it does, like, what does it recommend for you? For me, it's mostly movies about nuclear war, like survival tips and old like uh, drop and cover videos. They have a ton of those for free on Amazon streaming if you have the Amazon Prime account. So no, Amazon Prime is not a sponsor of this podcast, uh, but I am certainly recommending to anyone that already has it. There's quite a lot of stuff there. I'm just glad Jeff Bezos is preparing us for the end. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Every little bit counts. But this movie, even though it's no one really has heard of it, people that have been around at the time when it came out may have, may have seen it because it had you know an NBA player in the movie. It actually had a pretty decent cast. It was directed by Mike Newell, who people know now is from Four Weddings and a Funeral. He did one of the Harry Potter movies, The Goblet of Fire. 
uh, in two episodes of the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. So this guy's legit, you know? He's been he's he's done some stuff uh, since then. He also did like Donnie Brasco. Those are pretty good movies. So the rest of the cast, they're, they're they got a mix of knowns and unknowns. Uh, the child actor who plays the main character uh, from the title Chuck, he has not been anything since or after or before. This is kind of his big role here. Although I think he was a little league star. But what's who's the big guy that we should be talking about here? Kind of why we're talking about basketball? Like Alex English. Did you ever watch some Alex English highlight reels? So, I mean, I did after uh, you told me about the movie, obviously recognize the name. I didn't catch all of the the NBA heyday of the 80s, especially for the Lakers and Showtime as Lakers fans, which I'm not sure we've mentioned, but I'm sure we will both mm-hmm. mention repeatedly throughout this pod. And I thought I remembered sort of when uh, the team he was really hitting his prime when he was on the Denver Nuggets. And, you know, there were times when Denver was challenging L.A. in the Western Conference Finals or in playoff runs in the 80s. And obviously that happened more recently, too, back when the the Mm -hmm. Lakers were still good, which now is going on eight, nine years ago. Um, (laughs) Upward, upward trajectories. Yes, yes. We're only only heading up. Man, he was a big scoring leader. And I mean, we'll get into this later when you see some of the basketball footage in the movie. But uh, this guy knew the shot was going in when he took it. I think he's, he was one of the players who probably scored the most amount of points. He was a, in the 80s. He was a big scorer, eight-time NBA All-Star. He played for a couple of teams. He played for, as you mentioned, the Nuggets, uh, but also the Bucks, the Pacers, and the Mavericks. One team he did not play for, except in this movie, was the Boston Celtics. Uh, so the Lakers-Boston Celtics rivalry is certainly going to come through here a little bit, and uh, hopefully we, that won't cloud our judgment too much when it comes to this movie. But he did do a lot of stuff. He was also known for things outside of basketball. He was involved at the Sports United Sports Envoy Program, the U.S. Department of State, where he travels around the world doing basketball clinics uh, in in, in countries as part of like a a goodwill initiative. He uh, organized NBA players when he did play to aid Ethiopian famine victims. And he also co-chaired the Hands Across America Sports Committee. And it's also not his only movie credit. He was also a head coach in the 1996 movie Eddie. Oh, yeah. Uh, An- it, another great flick. Unfortunately, it has nothing to do with uh, nuclear weapons. Yeah. Uh, it Well, the movie bombed a bit, so maybe that counts. Yeah. Other people in this movie, Jamie Lee Curtis, she plays Alex English's, uh, the, his name in the movie is Amazing Grace. She played his agent. I think the character's name is Lynn Taylor. Gregory Peck came out of retirement for this movie. So we may, we may know uh, people who watch uh, nuclear movies may know Gregory Peck from a lot of things, but also from On the Beach. The, the original uh, movie was back in the 50s. Like He came out of retirement to make this film. He said that uh, the picture was a Frank Capra picture for the nuclear age, and I loved it. I had no intention to make another movie now. This story touched my heart, and I had to do it. He's not bad in this film as the U.S. president, unnamed just U.S. president. Hey, it was nice to see a U.S. president negotiate an arms control agreement with the other <laughs> nuclear power. If we got to watch it in a movie from 30 years ago, I'll take it. Yeah, yeah. It's a, definitely a throwback. Um, like Alex English's throwback jersey for the Nuggets is one of the most popular jerseys out there. This kind of stuff is also a throwback. Uh, and finally, I just want to mention Dennis Lipscomb. He played a character here who's a, a congressman named Johnny B. Good. He also played in two other movies. He did the the Lipscomb nuclear trilogy. He was a character named Watson in War Games, and he was Reverend Walker in The Day After. So that's two out of these three movies being the two large, huge, very popular anti-nuclear movies or nuclear movies at all. Uh, that's pretty good for his, for his uh, career. I wonder how he sleeps at night, too, for all this stuff. So this movie didn't do great with critics or the box office. We can't actually find any information about how much money this movie made. But we know that on at least on Rotten Tomatoes, 
got a 29% rating, so that's not too hot. But let's let's let not any of that stuff prejudge our impressions of this film. And let's let's run through this. We'll talk about the film, then we'll talk about some of the nuclear topics that it does cover, uh, and then we'll uh, you know actually then do our judging for the film. How's that sound? Perfect. Let's get into it. Excellent. It began in a small town in America. It began in the heart of a young boy and in the faith of an amazing man. He gave up what he did best because of this idea, and I don't think he should be alone. A boy who took a stand. Wish I could say that I was more like you when I was your age. You stood up for your beliefs. That feels good. But this work we're doing, these negotiations, they're more important than those feelings. Get out of here! Chuck, ever since this whole thing started, there's something that I've been meaning to say to you. I'm real proud of you. Amazing Grace and Chuck. Maybe one day, this story will be true. Wouldn't it be nice if one little leaguer's concern about nuclear weapons did grow or could grow into a worldwide peace movement? Amazing Grace and Chuck, two thumbs up. As usual, spoiler warning, we're going to spoil this film, although I do actually recommend that people watch this. It is very interesting. It'll be weird sounding film. It kind of sounds a little bit like a fever dream, uh, but trust us, it's this, all this stuff did happen. For example, the movie starts with a title card that says, Once Upon a Time There Was a Boy. And then where we go to next, we get a uh, bunch of kids living on a military base in Montana. Uh, they're playing catch and practicing baseball in their backyard. Some of them are being pretty mean to Chuck's little sister, Caroline. They are just seem like regular every, everyday kids. Does this uh, picture remind you a little bit of where you were growing up at all? Yeah, I mean, I remember my, you know, I have an older sister. We grew up in the middle of nowhere together, and she was mean to me, too. I can't recall instances in which she protected me from uh, mean friends of hers, but, mm-hmm. you know, as we find out, Chuck's quite the hero. So this is sort of foreshadowing his uh, the role to the role that he plays to come. Yeah, he's a, he's a good kid, and he's raised by parents who uh, they have a reason to be on the base because his dad is a fighter pilot. Uh, we see a fighter jet kind of just scream across the sky. His dad comes home from work, uh, and you know the way he comes home from work is he lands his his jet. And I think you have some notes here a little bit about kind of what that plane was. Yeah, I think it was a uh, it was either a. Uh, an F5 or TC, I think it was an F5 Tiger Shark, which I, from what I recall, was not a plane that was really produced for domestic use, except maybe serving with the National Guard. And I believe he was a reserve pilot in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was something that was really exported to other countries. I'd have to double check, but I'm pretty sure it's not supposed to carry nuclear weapons. But whatever plane was around for the purpose of this film was totally fine because you wanted yeah. fighter jock dad to set that image, you know, create the conflict later with his son. And, you know, it's all good. Whatever plane he was flying. I liked that his, uh, his uh, wife was there waiting for him, watching him land. And I imagine they live like two feet from the air base since they live in the middle of nowhere, Montana. But I try to imagine what people look for when planes are flying in the air today above air bases. And, Based on recent news, it tends to be uh, inappropriate drawings in the sky with contrails. Um, but no, it's uh, it's uh, Chuck's dad, Russ. He's just this cool, handsome pilot stepping out of the plane, and there's no motorcycle or volleyball scene that follows. We're mm-hmm. going to have to wait for Top Gun 2 to see that again. Hopefully Top Gun 2 has got some nuclear elements into it. You would seem like that's the way to step it up. You know, they're no longer fighting over some uh, TBD country. It should be nuclear at this point. That's the only way to really escalate it past, uh, you know, what it, what it was able to accomplish previously. The It's a good thing that the dad landed when he did because the mom and dad are rushing off to catch the last couple of innings of Chuck's Little League game. And this is where we learn... Like, he is good, right? We got some slow 
slow-mo pitching. He's he is the best player. He can probably go pro in a few years. He seems like yeah. he's, he's he's great. Uh, and the entire economy of the town is based either in the military or in the little league games because everybody's there. Everybody's buying popcorn. Uh, so he's terrific. He he's plays for the team called the Mustangs. He wins the game. Chuck is obviously the rock star, as you said. I mean, the entire team, as you find out, really just sort of rises and falls with him. And yeah, to your point, I mean, um, I have trouble watching bad NBA games, but the entire town turned out for this yeah. little league game and uh, random middle of the day. But it's clear, obviously, that this is setting up Chuck to be this big shot baseball player. And obviously, as you've already alluded to, that plays into the big part of the movie when the movie goes nuclear later on. <laughs> uh, yeah, and it's uh, he's not just a, an athlete. He's not just a jock. Chuck is also a pretty well-rounded kid. He knows science, and he does a science experiment, and the dad mentions that his friend, the, the congressman, Johnny B. Good. I'm not really sure why his name is Johnny B. Good. If that's a nickname, it sounds like it's his actual name. Congressman Johnny B. Good, an old friend of his, he was going to be touring the bases uh, pretty soon, and he's going to be uh, at where Chuck is going to do a science experiment. And what what is a science experiment? He, he launches a model rocket. Uh, up into the air and there's this question about whether or not you're going to have a mouse or some kind of mice inside the rocket and uh that this scene was actually pretty touching to me because uh when i was in grade school in early part of high school i used to be a big fan of model rockets uh, and I, I would build them and i also did an experiment at one point probably it's one of my biggest regrets of life is doing a science experiment with a mouse and a rocket because that was one of the things you could choose from and i did it i kept those mice and they lived for a really long time so this particular scene in addition to it being a nuke movie uh and about basketball was like oh maybe this movie was written for me three years after i was born but anyways i so this the congressman is really excited that the rocket goes off it goes up really high and he says that's really terrific kid colonel would you see that somebody takes these men to get their capsule and then meet us at the silo very well congressman i'm gonna show them one uncle sam's huh and then where do they go next on their on their school trip they go to a, a Minuteman three silo next. Thinking through this movie and what they're the sort of what the the copy looked like. Did they need the model rocket launch just to segue to the Minuteman yeah. three silo? Maybe. I mean, you know, the congressman mentions a big appropriations bill, and then they just sort of go watch the the rocket launch, and then they just end up at a Minuteman three silo. So I was sort of keeping pace, and I'm, and part of my you know the notes I took during this movie was kind of like it didn't need that scene, didn't need that scene. Like we could have mm-hmm, gotten mm-hmm. through Act one without this scene, but you know, to your point, let's let's keep going. They end up at the Minuteman 3 silo which has this really scary music right that mm-hmm. uh they could have put Darth Vader breathing in the background um <laughs> to to sort of convey the sense of dread you're supposed to feel as the, the viewer here and again it's just all you see is this kind of concrete slab in the middle of nowhere Montana and I think Johnny B. Good mentions you know this is a Minuteman 3 ballistic missile 20 megaton warhead um I think you had some notes on this I did too I, I have seen I went back through the history of the Minuteman 3 and never has there been a 20 megaton warhead put on it, but who knows? I mean, this movie might be exposing truths that uh, we never knew of. This particular missile, or bird as it's called, is 66 feet long. It has a range of 7,000 miles. And a 20 megaton warhead, which is more than all the explosives dropped by both sides in World War II you tell these kind of secret truths to children because then what are they going to no one's going to believe them yeah i I don't think there's ever been anything close to that at all on a minuteman 3 or let alone really any icbm i think because you need these large megaton yields when your accuracy is not so great 
when your accuracy gets better, you don't need as much of a big of a bomb. And the information that I was able to find was that since 1979, the Minuteman 3 has actually had the W78 warhead. You know, we don't really know, but the estimates publicly available are between 335 and 400 kilotons, which is, you know, thousands of tons, not megatons, which is millions of tons. So very, very small, much smaller compared to the 20 megaton bomb that they say in this film. And even U.S. bombs that were over 20 megatons were, were gravity bombs. They were dropped from airplanes. They were not on missiles. Uh, and we haven't had those really since the 70s. Anyways, I don't know why movies sometimes need to exaggerate the yields for these things. Why they can't just say 500 kilotons because that's still pretty bad. What it, the, One of the kids asks, like, where is these targeted for? Which I thought was kind of funny. The congressman says, no, I can't tell you that. That's classified. But it can be in Russia in 20 minutes. So it's like, yeah. Yeah, I thought that was I thought that was a funny interaction. Because again, it's sort of like there were parts of that line that they didn't really need to have out there. The only other things I could find on Minuteman, I guess, you know, I think they modified the W87 at some point with Peacekeeper being retired. So they Mm -hmm. could use them on the Minuteman 3s. And as W78s get older and older. I just thought it was funny to sort of where is it aimed? Well, I can't tell you, but it's going to be in <laughs> Russia in 20 minutes from Johnny Be Good. I mean, it, it was sort of this casual conversation where I think one of the things I noticed here is you sort of have these first glimpses by these children of what this thing is. Mm-hmm. Chuck is one of the only children who really seems to be in awe of it and have very basic questions. The responses from Johnny Be Good, sorry, the Honorable Congressman <laughs> Johnny Be Good are very casual, sort of an acceptance uh, of the, the sort of normalcy of the situation they're in, right? That is definitely the impression that this is just part of the community life. I think you could basically drive right up to these things. And in real life, you know, you probably can't get right up up to it, but these things just, they exist co-located with farmland. You know, different parts of the of our of the you know the middle part of the country, and the reason is because there's a lot of open space there, and also it would take longer for other countries' missiles to get to those targets. So there's a few extra seconds, a few extra minutes for them to get their missiles up in the air before they're hit. And in real life, there is uh, a pretty significant missile base in Montana. Uh, that's the one that's the Malmstrom uh, missile base, the 341st uh, Strategic Missile Wing uh, is over there. So it is a pretty good location. The reason why it's there is because it's closer to Russia than any other other places, because it would the missile would travel you know up through space but it would travel north across the poles i just thought it was so funny that it's at least the impression i hope that people don't get with this film is that the people that you see later which are they, they get a tour of the actual missile launch facility during a shift change which i thought was incredible they literally are watching the two new people coming in to replace the other two people who are in the, the launch facility in the bunker you know the people who would turn the key that stuff is pretty closely guarded but you know cool maybe the congressman has some some clearance but i just want people to understand like the actual people that are sitting in the bunkers usually don't actually sit next to a missile themselves they're further away and the idea is you don't have the people who turn the keys close to the missiles you have them separated so that they're not you know they're not the ones being hit when a missile gets hit so if a missile hits one place, they can survive one missile launch facility with two people can control several wings of, of silos and not just the one. But the movie kind of implies that they're right there. They don't go anywhere else. But I just thought it was so funny that the, the kids are there right during the middle of a shift change. And the congressman explains that. Look, this is the cornerstone of America's defense. And it is the most carefully designed system in the world. Now, these men are the last link in a... A huge chain that starts and can only start with the president himself. Children, the simple truth is that missile will never be used. That's why it was built. Now, you believe me when I tell you that everybody, and I mean everybody, 
down here is very, very scary. Um, the other thing I think that happened in this scene, Chuck asked about his dad. Yeah. And uh, what if his dad has to carry nuclear weapons on his fighter jet? I don't know if you wanted to get into that now. But... Yeah, let's do it. It's funny because Johnny B. Good like, mocks the very idea that his dad's uh, airplane or his jet would compare with the the power of the the ICBM force. He, he calls what? He calls the, the airplane a toy compared yeah. to? That they're toys compared to the Minuteman 3, which I thought was... A really interesting way you know maybe that's a good way to try to sell loyal nuclear weapons to, mm-hmm. to the skeptics is to just call them toys if your daddy ever has nukes which i doubt they are tactical i mean hell damn foot soldiers can have tactical nukes and they're bazookas that's a that's a toy compared to what you saw today what yeah it's a little hard to explain listen why don't you just go join your little friends huh no i want you to tell me how my dad's plan is a toy you know, Chuck, for a bright kid, you were just a tad slow. I mean, don't you know what you saw here today? You know, those tactical nuclear weapons that are like, I don't know, half a kiloton, those kinds of things? Don't worry about that. Well, he says something like, you know, there are people with bazookas who carry the tactical nuclear weapons. You know, essentially, it's not a big deal. But mm-hmm. this this is the real deal. Uh, this is not a toy. And then they sort of, he, he walks Chuck through exactly what would happen when those warheads come in to little old Montana and tell, sort of paint him the scenario of his family being, you know, vaporized. Yeah, he says, Let's just say that your mama and your sister are uh, washing dishes after dinner and Carolyn drops a fork. Now, if an ICBM airbursts even miles away, your sister's going to be vaporized before that fork hits the floor. Now, do you understand? Yeah, vaporized. So is everybody else in a 50-mile radius. Do you tell that to a child like Chuck? What's going to happen? He's going to have a, a darn nuclear nightmare. Is what, <laughs> And that's what does happen. He has this nuclear nightmare of him in his, his baseball uniform. Uh, he's hearing the word vaporized over and over again. He's next to one of the silo doors as they're opening. And he just keeps hearing the word global. Nuclear exchange. Nuclear exchange. And that terrifies him, and that would be terrifying me. I mean, I would have a nightmare if that was a, if I was a kid like that forever. Yeah, I mean, I think this is you know people in the uh, especially in the outside government, people in the nuclear policy space often lament that uh, sort of our generation and younger we've we've never gotten to experience the test you know an above ground test where you don't know what that a nuclear weapon a nuclear explosion feels like, and therefore that lack of understanding is what leads the millennials and near millennials to sort of not not cares enough about this space. And, you know, if you're Chuck and you're having nightmares yeah. after you got to see a Minuteman 3 because this kind of jerk of a congressman who's supposed to be a family friend walked you exactly through how your family would die in the nuclear explosion, I mean, maybe we just need more Johnny B. Goods in our life, <laughs> uh, more people to talk to come talk to students in classrooms or do story time um, for toddlers or even, you know, talk to new congressmen maybe when they um, are first elected to say, you know, I'll bring in my boombox and play some ominous music and then I'm going to speak in this very low voice mm-hmm. about exactly how your family will be vaporized at the drop of a fork. Um, it's kind of half what I do on this podcast. So it works out pretty well. <laughs> but I'll, I'll give Chuck this. He doesn't just get afraid. He doesn't just have a nightmare. He doesn't just... You know, I don't know have any agency. I don't know what to do. He comes up with something. The next day, he's about to go to another baseball game. They're going to play the Mighty Tigers. And Chuck tells his coach kind of quickly, very all of a sudden. There's no discussion about this beforehand. He says he can't pitch. 
Can't play, Uncle Dick. Kind of big game, Chuck. First game with the Tigers. Kind of like to show them who's boss in case we meet them later in the finals. I'll tell you what. Try a couple innings. Let's go, Chuck! Just can't play. Can't play because of the nuclear weapons. What's that got to do with baseball? Nothing. But it's my best thing. I have to give up something. Who told you that? Nobody. Did your dad know about this? Uh, the coach tries to call in for another pitcher. I forget, what was his pitcher's name? The other guy? Jerome. Poor Jerome. Jerome. And everyone's like, no, Jerome sucks. We forfeit. Chuck keeps, you know, he says, like, I can't. I'm going to give up baseball. And he has his heart-to-heart with his dad. And at this point in the movie, his dad does not understand what is happening at all. But um, word gets out. He must have talked to one of the local reporters. That, re- that that news piece gets into the wires. And now it's national news that this little league kid in Montana, his baseball star, gives up baseball because, you know, nuclear weapons are scary. And he doesn't want to do it until he'll, he'll pitch again if nuclear weapons are gone. Yeah, I think this is where Chuck's best attempt at an explanation, essentially saying, I have to give up what I like most or what I'm best at because there are nuclear weapons, which I didn't really understand the logic of. And it turns out that the movie continues without sort of bridging that logical gap there. And that's totally yeah. fine. This movie needed a scene at the beginning where there, someone was telling a story about people, when they care about something, they'll sacrifice something that they care about to for a greater good or some sort of a, a story, like a, a teacher telling this story about a person who did this in a classroom or something. He never really says why, and it's not really fully even explained to the audience what it is. But, you know, we do figure it out. It's clunky. I think this movie also paints the nuclear disarmament advocacy groups and uh, advocates as you know, social pariahs who hate baseball. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this movie is what makes that connection and creates this sort of this un-American tinge to the disarmament movement, which you see later. Mm. Um, I mean, this town loves baseball. This is like, you know, I imagined in my head as I was watching this, like, what if Friday Night Lights, Star QB or Riggs or, you know, Saracen or one of these guys said, you know, there's nuclear weapons. I don't want to do this. I mean, that's all that town had. They just had football on Friday night. Yeah. And they're like, all right, fine. I can't watch my Little League game, but at least I can turn on the television and watch a nice NBA game, which is kind of what the next scene in the movie is. We cut to a basketball game. It's at the Boston Garden. Uh, We see Amazing Grace, uh, played by, we mentioned, player, NBA, real-life NBA player, Alex English. Uh, He hits some game-winning threes. uh, He's known in the movie for his, he's a three-point specialist, which kind of, back in the 80s, people weren't really three-point specialists. They were shooters. Like Larry, yep. like Larry Bird and Big Game James, all of those great shooters, but not necessarily three-pointing was not the main thing like it is today in today's NBA. So you got your, yeah, Steph, I, you got your Steph Curry's and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, the, the, obviously the, the numbers have changed, the abilities has changed, but I mean, I you saw, um, you did not see, well, I should back up. Um, as you said, this, this, these are the Celtics. Is that the Garden? I don't like the Celtics. <laughs> I really don't like Danny Ainge, and you hear Danny Ainge's name, and you actually see him in the footage a yeah. couple of times. Alex English drained this contested three to win the game, and that wasn't something you saw a ton of in the 80s, except, you know, Larry Bird did it famously in yeah. very important games. And, you know, obviously on the, the Lakers that we love, we had Byron Scott, of all people, uh, was one of the, the best three-point shooters, hopefully a name that we don't have to name again on the podcast. <laughs> but, yeah, no, I mean, it was, it was nice to see some NBA footage, despite it being the hated Celtics, once you walk through this quick game, you got Alex English on his uh, stationary exercise bike. Mm-hmm. He doesn't look doesn't look too happy, and that's when we have the next main character walk in. 
yeah, we got we got Jamie Lee Curtis here playing the, uh, his agent and close friend, um, Alex English or Maz- Amazing Grace. We have to make sure that we know that that's that's his name. I think he has a name in the movie. They mentioned it at one point, but everybody calls him Amazing Grace. Jamie Lee Curtis, when, when he was her first uh, client, and he he's on his exercise bike. He seems like he's read something in the paper. He's working through something while exercising, looking uh, introspectively out through the window. She comes in, wonders what's going on, and he says, "Hey, look, you got to check out this story." about this kid in Montana. It's kind of amazing, but I don't know if it's real. Look at this. Some kid from Montana. Little League pitcher. I wonder if a kid really did this. Uh, So he goes. He goes to Montana. Amazing Grace just shows up, and uh, they decide to have a little bit of a conversation, and just based on the weight of that one conversation about why did you do it, oh, I don't know, Nuclear weapons are, are scary. He, they don't really go into a lot of details about that, but it's enough to convince Amazing Grace to resign from basketball. And we get this scene where he describes why he's doing it. He gave up what he did best because of this idea. I couldn't believe it, but he's real. I met him, and I don't think he should be alone. You're telling us you're leaving basketball as a protest? Let me say this slowly. I hate being misquoted. I am giving up basketball until there are no more nuclear weapons. I thought it was interesting. I mean, he, you know, he ends up in Montana, which I don't think is, you mentioned this before. I imagine there's not a lot of Montanans watching the NBA because they don't have a team. Well, they said he was, they said he was on the way to a game in Seattle, which also doesn't have a team anymore. Yeah, that's sort of pour one out for Seattle, um, the Supersonics and what they've become, which is the Thunder, which has had every free agent leave it or be traded. (laughs) That has mattered. Yeah. And then there's Grace's trying to get Chuck to show him how to, throw a baseball through yeah. the tire that's hanging from the tree, which I don't think we mentioned. And they're pretty close to that tire. And Grace is not anywhere close to, to getting the ball through the, the tire. Um, so I, I, I don't think he's much of a multi-sport athlete, which is really what the eighties were all about. Mm-hmm. Bo Jackson um, <laughs> and eventually Deion Sanders. Um, and the other odd thing about all this, and you see this throughout the movie. And again, it was the eighties. Chuck's just kind of hanging out with this stranger yeah. NBA player in montana on his own on the driveway playing basketball you never see chuck's parents at any point in this entire scene that wouldn't fly today and i imagine people would pick up on that in a movie that was uh that that you saw today and then you you mentioned the the resignation scene with red nodding i thought that this wasn't the clearest explanation until he kind of gets to the end of you know his actual resignation and talking to the reporters and he sort of says you kind of get the like the entire point of this protest, I guess, is he's given up what he's best at, which is basketball, until nuclear weapons are gone. He never really says because I want everyone else to miss me, and then they'll realize they need to sort of pay up by getting rid of nuclear weapons, and then they'll see me again. Or if this is sort of a self-imposed, I'm limiting myself from doing what I love. So clearly, the connection, as I mentioned before, is not really there between him sitting out games and getting rid of nuclear weapons. But we know, um, and maybe we'll get to a little bit later with more modern protests by athletes. Sometimes it's all they really have is the the fact that they're televised, they're a star, that people want to see them, and they have to take that away to create the pressure. Yeah, and when asked why are you doing this, you know, it's not a hundred percent clear if Alex English was concerned about nuclear weapons before Chuck. He may have been 
you know, I don't like them because no one loves them. Some people in our community very much do. But most people on the average, you know, they, they know about them from movies. They know that they're dangerous. But they don't have an opinion much kind of further than that. It's not clear if Amazing Grace had that or if he was just, as he says, he just likes, you know, Chuck's gumption and wants to support him. We know that his agent is really upset. So you just leave and I'm supposed to clean it up? You'll be lucky if the team doesn't sue you. Uh, talking heads on TV say that they don't like the intrusion of politics into sports, uh, which is very, very relevant for today. And we get this next scene, which is a part of the movie that I don't really enjoy too much, but we don't really know what's going on yet. But we, we see these random evildoers. They're wearing suits. They're debating about whether or not the protest will change anything. They seem to be making deals. They're always on the phone reading newspapers. I almost imagine they would have like ticker tape and looking at like stock quotes. Uh, they're some sort of nameless group of uh, multinational businessmen uh, who have an interest and in, uh, have their hands in a little bit of everything, including nuclear weapons. Very 80s, slick back hair, double-breasted suits. The, there's a guy with a thick German accent called Johan, and they have this what I consider to be a pretty interesting conversation about athletes and what seems like servitude. Um, And we find out what this guy's name is later, but sort of the, I guess the, the lead antagonist of this group, Alexander Jeffries, Jeffries. That's right. Alex Jeffries. And he, his quote is sort of, we let them think as well as play Johan. He says to the (laughs) German guy. And that reminded me of some more contemporary comments by reporters on certain news channels about, uh, what athletes should do and not do. But yeah, my I thought this was weird. And this is a thread throughout the entire movie I find to be strange. Um, yeah. Just like, who are these guys? And they're, they're, they really don't need to exist for the rest of the movie to continue on. But as we see later, they have a pretty significant part to play. They do. They do. They just want international order. It's not clear if they invest in the military nuclear enterprise or it's just more chaotic world. So they... They are a fan of the status quo, nuclear deterrence, all of that stuff. Maybe we're we're we are waiting for like blinking neon lights and a sign to say like exactly what these industrialists or whatever they are. Mm-hmm. And so like if if someone was named Joe Lockheed and Brett Boeing or something, <laughs> you know, it would have jumped out at me a little bit more. But this this really short scene just sort of teased that there were people who were yeah. opposed to the idea of you know creating a fuss about nuclear weapons. But again, as you see later. There is a U.S. government, and as is the case today, there is some opposition to the idea of just getting rid of all of our nuclear weapons from the official U.S. government. And so what part these guys need to play, again, it's sort of it's sort of unnecessary, but adds to the movie in some way, as we'll see. Yeah, I'm not—it's more it's mostly execution to me. These people, if you can have that, because they do represent like a composite of the business side or the non-government side that's— perpetuating the nuclear status quo that's totally yeah. okay sort of defense industrial complex or something i think you can't go halfway with just a guy with a german accent and the nice suits and the slick back hair if you want to make these guys evil i think in, in this sort of short time frame like you need a a white cat with a leather chair and <laughs> you need sort of a dr evil vibe i think that would have been i would have appreciated that more Sorry to keep belaboring the point, but there's this idea in film where you have a scene early on where your hero of the movie saves a cat. You know, whether it means that they literally save a cat or maybe they help 
someone who is trying to get their overhead luggage out of the airplane and, the, and that character helps them and you go, well, you know what? This person's actually pretty good. They're a nice person. You need usually the reverse of that for villains. Like they need to do something dastardly. This person kind of stands up for Alex English at, right. at the early point. And you're, don't, I don't really understand. Like, is he the good guy of the bad guys? I don't know. doesn't. Yeah, he's like, he's the best of them. Right. It's unclear. And it's also kind of unclear why Alex uh, English or Amazing Grace, he just keeps showing up to Chuck's house again. He he stays, he comes for dinner. You mentioned there's a bunch of scenes where uh, Amazing Grace is basically going on a, like an extended walking hike and bike riding with Chuck uh, in the woods. And they, they visit this old barn that Amazing Grace has bought uh, for some reason. And he's going to He's going to like uh, live there and help Chuck protest nuclear weapons. I will say there is there's very little sort of detailing of Amazing Grace's thinking throughout the movie. That he doesn't really sort of walk through why he's doing what he's yeah. doing. He just kind of does it. And like, you know, it seemed like a pretty nice picturesque area. Maybe he just wanted to retire and move there. Um, it's not what I would do. I'd probably just take the millions of dollars to play the game that I love in the in a big city. But there is a bit about his back. His backstory is, is a little bit sad. So you're unclear about this movie yet. If if he's doing this because he's concerned about nuclear weapons, is he doing this to support Chuck for someone he thinks that he wants to align with? Or if it's because his uh, wife and child a few years ago had been killed in a car crash. And this is one yeah. of his ways of trying to find peace. It's it's good. It just seems a little bit you know poorly handled in the film and how it's executed. Uh, but any of those reasons could be you know, why he's he's doing these things. Yeah, I know. I think, and I'm glad you touched on the the sad story. It's obviously there's there's sort of a rounding out of his character that's taking place. It's not just this sort of odd uh, experience of a basketball player just resigning because he mm-hmm. maybe doesn't like nuclear weapons, but never really explains exactly why. I mean, sort of, you you get a little bit more depth to Amazing Grace's character here. Yeah, and then you know, as we're sort of like complaining about not really knowing what's going on, what is the point of all this? You get to this diner scene. Yeah. Um, and you meet this reporter who I believe I saw in a Star Trek episode, um, which <laughs> I've been rewatching. And I really didn't like his character in it because he was kind of he was like a inspector general kind of mm. character who was like doing a an audit, essentially, to find a, a leaker or sort of a, a traitor. Then this reporter comes in and I recognize him immediately. And um, he's trying to figure out what are these guys up to? What are, what are Chuck and Amazing Grace's? What's their plan here? What are they trying to accomplish? Appreciate the chance to talk to you. Real event to have you visit us this way. You going to organize it from here? Organize what? Uh, excuse me, I assume this was a movement of some kind. Uh, or do you think your personal absence will change nuclear policy? I, I mean, uh, you think we ought, to, we ought to take some kind of first step, then let the Russians follow suit? I don't know. Kid, this is your show. You gotta tell this guy what you think. Have you ever seen one of those muscles, sir? How do you want them? He starts like, getting into. He's like, "What do you, what do you think about Salt Three negotiations? So those should, should those resume?" And he starts to get into like these details of, of policy, and he always he he asks them to Amazing Grace, and Amazing Grace kind of diverts the question back to Chuck, to say, "Look, Chuck, this is your get, you know, your show. I'm just." Uh, Kind of here, uh, I'm just the guy in the barn. Uh, I'm not really the person who's going to be uh, leading on this. And Chuck, uh, you know, asked the uh, reporter, hey, what do you want these nuclear weapons so close by? We don't get an answer. 
but that kind of shows the the level of uh, concern people have for this. Yeah, I thought it was strange. I mean, like, I, you know, I, I like Chuck's line here. You know, I, you can't really pin the reporter down as being kind of pro-nuclear or something. But again, and I mentioned this before, reflexively, the reporter's questioning, why do you guys not like nuclear weapons, right? As if the, the status quo position is you should like nuclear weapons or be okay with nuclear weapons. So the sort of programming, and I think this maybe this is what they were trying to convey, the sort of writers of this movie who, you know, I'd love to talk to someday about a sequel. You know, the, the sort of programming of the individuals there, and this is a nuclear town, clearly, in a nuclear state, is to accept these weapons. And so when Chuck asks them, you know, have you ever seen these missiles, sir? Why do you want them? Yeah. I thought that was sort of a it was sort of a powerful moment. It sort of showed that Chuck's the Chuck's the strange one, but it doesn't really come. It, it's sort of like, why is he the strange one? This is actually one of those places where I, I did actually rewind the movie because I'm like, oh, this is good. Like, this is a good scene where maybe with a different child actor could have pulled it off a little bit better. And you would have gotten a little more of a, oh, wow, as opposed to, wow, this is continually weird why this kid is hanging out with this NBA player in a diner. Right. Yeah. Maybe think of like episode one, Phantom Menace, when yeah, he had yeah. a relatively terrible actor uh, for a child hanging out with um, a relatively well accomplished actor and Liam Neeson uh, throughout the whole movie. And you're supposed to believe this guy becomes Darth Vader. Now, sort of the opposite with Chuck, you're supposed to believe this guy sort of starts this international movement to disarm. And, you know, it doesn't really jump off the screen at you. No, not so much, but I, I do like the question of, you know, trying to turn that back onto people. I'm like, why, why do you think that that's weird to not, to not be terrified by these things and, and have that personal reaction. And I think the one thing that I wish they would have pursued a little bit more, and they kind of touch on this every once in a while, which is, look, once you have the personal viewing of the, the missiles, and once you start to ask those things and start to becoming more personally involved, you start to think about, well, what effect would this have on my family? Uh, and you become more of an activist, which is one of the ways you grow a movement is to connect those things to people. I wish there would have been the counterpoint there, which is what well, you mentioned. This is a town based around nuclear basing. To have that pushed back as opposed to the scenes we see a little bit later where people are protesting pacifism and mm -hmm. not so much like, what are you doing? This is this is the way our community is. Uh, right. And anyway, we'll get into that a little bit later about how local communities have different perspectives on these things and that stuff can kind of come into conflict. We do get this kind of cool scene between Chuck's dad and Amazing Grace. They talk about the inevitability of nuclear weapons, and it's kind of where you start to get that. In addition to being a, a, a fighter pilot, it looks like Chuck's dad, Russell, is also uh, runs a, a lumber yard. He's unloading some lumber to the barn, and they have this conversation about like, hey... I don't think you're here for any particular good reason. I don't think you're a very stable person. Uh, I think you need to leave Chuck alone and let us get back to the life we had before you got here and you kind of un up undid this stuff. So there is a little bit of that conflict. And I think those scenes are between the father and Amazing Grace are some of the better scenes in the movie. Yeah, I, I agree. I think, um, you know, I, I tried to take note of some of the quotes here where, uh, as you mentioned, there's sort of this uh, fatalistic acceptance that nuclear weapons are here. And we're always going to have them. And uh, I think Grace's response was, but wouldn't it be nice if we didn't? Mm -hmm. And then you see Russ sort of roll his eyes at this point. He calls him the damn Pied Piper, um, <laughs> which, you know, wasn't a reference I'd probably go with. But, hey, it's an 80s movie. Well, a sad story about a, a person who takes children away from people. <laughs> it actually does kind of work. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. Yeah, you're right. Good point. Um, but it, it's obvious here that the dad's. Dad wants to sort of explain what Chuck is doing. Mm -hmm. Russ wants to explain what his son Chuck is doing. And 
blame someone else for what's going on. But, you know, I think throughout this movie, I saw no evidence that Chuck would have gone back to school, would have started pitching again, if not for Grace and uh, what happens with his barn and uh, the movement that grows. It's, so it seems like Chuck's fine being solo. I mean, he was planning, he was going to do this regardless of whether Amazing Grace helped him out or not. Absolutely. Uh, but fortunately for both Amazing Grace and Chuck, and much to the chagrin of this very quiet town, uh, we all of a sudden get some more athletes, some more NFL athletes show up. And the way we're introduced to these two players, I think one of them is, are they both on the Miami Dolphins? Uh, yeah. one's, one's a quarterback and one is, uh, you know, large man. I'm not sure what, what he was playing. Um, yeah, the big guy. So the big guy was the quarterback and the the dude with the, mu the mullet and mustache uh, whose name is Hot Dog McNally. This is by far my favorite scene, just yeah. being these two. Um, and maybe you can go through a little bit of how how they are introduced to the scene. But, yeah, they're, they're a star quarterback and wide receiver pair, kind of a la a Tom Brady, Wes Welker on the Patriots, except they're, they're with the Dolphins. Yeah, okay. Well, we're introduced to these characters because they steal an ambulance from the town and kidnap uh, what looks like, you know, they're trying to kidnap uh, Amazing Grace. And I actually was like, oh, no, the evildoers have already started to attack. Uh, but, nope, they joke about how these guys are – they're, they're friends of theirs. They drive the ambulance right up to the ICBM fence, the silo fence, uh, where they, we saw earlier in the movie. But guns come out and like, what are you doing here? You have to get away. Well, because they're celebrities, they get to hang out. They don't get to go down uh, in the silo or anything, but they you know, they also don't get arrested uh, for sightseeing and stuff. So it must be pretty nice. But there is that fun line about uh, Hot Dog Manalik says, You mean you got something down there that I paid my tax dollars to build? I mean, too damn many tax dollars. And I can't even see it? Yes, sir. Well, have you ever seen it, son? No, sir. Well, maybe it ain't even there. I liked it. I liked, I liked hearing the taxpayer argument from the, the multimillionaire athlete. <laughs> yeah. This is where you see Hot Dog McNally basically, you know, he's like, I'm in. Yeah. Let's do he'll this sit, thing. He'll sit I'm, out the season. I'm here for Global Zero, too. <laughs> and uh, he even convinces... Uh, in a very awkward scene again, too, is it's one of those things like they get back to the air the airport. Uh, his the quarterback George is about to get on the plane, but he he kind of has this conversation with himself. He's like, you know what? I have kids. I like my kids. I want to see my kids for a long time. I don't want them to die in a nuclear fire. You know what I'm in? And kind of has his own conversation by himself. So now we got three people plus Chuck, and then we get some newspaper headlines. Uh, I thought this was kind of funny. Uh, There's a newspaper headline that says two Miami Dolphins resign. But if you zoom in on the text of the article, it's actually about NFL players being drug tested uh, for cocaine, which is a really weird mixed message for that movie. Uh, the players resign because of nuclear protests, but they're also on crack and cocaine. Uh, I'm not sure. I don't know if there's like a sort of a subtweet of Miami in the 80s oh, or something yeah. going on there. Okay, that's but... pretty funny. That's pretty good. But we start to get a couple other professional athletes joining the movement. They start hanging out in the barn. It kind of looks like this, like a commune. Like the 60s yeah. are back in this barn in Montana. And this is where I start to wonder, uh, is this movie making fun of anti-nuclear weapon movements? <laughs> is it kind of looking like this fad where people just decide, uh, I don't know, no real reason of thought, but like I'll join this group. Uh, I don't know. Like, I don't think so, but it does. I, I have this working theory that it put back the uh, anti-nuclear movement about 30 years. <laughs> I, I mean, like, yeah, they're kind of grilling out and playing football. It looks like it's kind of a picnic uh, sort of setting, right? Like yeah. you're just meeting up with a bunch of friends in uh, Rock Creek Park somewhere at a pavilion. And that, that apparently is life now. And, uh, you know, the reporter's still there. 
it does have this cult feel, but it almost feels like these guys are like, you know, what's fun? Just kind of going to Montana and hanging out with my yeah. friends. And like that seems like what's going on. There's not a ton of serious disarmament talk going on. Yeah, yeah. It's like a, the, the banana boat anti-nuclear movement uh, is coming <laughs> together. Um, but so we get another quick scene of the the villains again, the, the evildoers, uh, Alexander Jeffries. He approaches the agent, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis. And she's just, you know, looking uh, on. I think they're in Harvard. They're 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 in Boston, right? Obviously, yeah. they're, they're in Boston. They're watching watching some... crew. They're watching the boats on the on the river. Kind of have this like flirtatious moment of watching crew and how he said he's going to come back the next week and they're going to continue this chat. But she seems like something's off. And eventually they get they get together and he th- clearly threatens Amazing Grace through her and says, "Look, if you don't stop your client from doing this, because it's starting to get a, a movement together." We don't know, like, I'm not going to do anything, but the people that I work with, the people that I represent, they are nasty. They're going to do some really bad stuff. And that eventually gets down to Amazing Grace and everything. But we start to see these people are developing a a more violent response uh, to this movement. And as this movement grows, the media shows up at Chuck's house. His dad is not happy about this. He says that people are bullying Caroline, that his dad is getting mean phone calls at the lumber yard. His mom can't use the front door. Still, the dad says he's not going to force Chuck to stop the protest. He just hopes that Chuck is not doing this to get back at the dad. And that it's not yeah, it's fighting good. him for the... Which is a very genuine... I like that little moment. It's very nice. Yeah, I think if Chuck were a few years older, this would be a really funny, angsty teenager scene of mm-hmm. like, sorry, dad, I'm inconveniencing you while I try to lead the world to global, global nuclear <laughs> yeah. disarmament. But there's a little bit of whininess from uh, from Russ here. But you do see that he, in his own hands-off way, is kind of supporting his son and he's not going to force his son to to change his principles, which I think, I think there's a good parenting moment there. It's pretty nice. And he stands up for Chuck when the counter protesters show up, uh, who, who just, they come across as Montana redneck and they drive their truck, uh, right up to the, the house of Chuck's house on, right on the lawn. And I don't know what they were going to do, but like, they were going to beat up Chuck. Um, but the, the football players run out. Uh, Chuck's dad jumps like out, out of the window. Almost. It looks like, uh, off the porch into to basically to fight people, uh, they start calling them pacifists. And there's one football player who I think is a real player for the Bears. Yeah, I, th- I can't remember if he had a Steelers jersey on, or Steelers tank top, or a Bears tank top in the beginning. But he was a big dude, an '80s linebacker. And he's he has this great moment where he yells, "I am not a pacifist!" While he like almost flips the the pickup truck upside down. Yeah. So it, it is a fun moment. I wish they would have explored that a little bit better about tough athletes joining anti-nuclear protests, because that is kind of a, a, a fun, you know, contrast because people may be like, oh, anti-nuclear people, you must be all like hippies and, and wussies. But it's like, no, we're just super concerned about the end of the world. Uh, yeah. And it turns out like you can bench press 500 pounds, but, you know, when you're hit with 20 PSI overpressure, nothing's going to really help you with that too much. Maybe he might be the one guy who like lasts, right? But other, everybody else, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, this guy was a monster. He picked up the truck and just moved it off the yard. And that pretty much ended the counter-protest. Yeah, that, that's pretty much it. Um, the town starts to rally around uh, the, the, the the protest movement. They're they're supportive of it. They they maybe don't like, don't love the media attention, but you know, there's there's clearly something there, except not everybody's happy. Johnny B. Good comes back. The honorable congressman uh, comes back and tells 
the dad, you look, you need to get Chuck to back off because it's making trouble for him back in Washington, D.C. He kind of almost implies if you don't get your son to stop this protest movement, we are going to take your job away. You're not going to be able to fly planes anymore. And the dad kind of says, like, bugger off. Uh, And he gets on the airplane and, and flies away. Yeah, I think, I mean, Johnny B. Good basically says that the Pentagon's weighing in with him trying to get him to, to get the kid to be quiet, which yeah. um, from what I recall working in legislative affairs, the state department, it's not usually the direction that the pressure goes. It's yeah. usually going the other, the other way. And Congress, <laughs> Congress is making asks to the agencies, not the other way around. The dad basically kind of says, yeah, good luck with that. Gets in his plane and zooms off because again, he is this, he isn't just this great dad. He's this fighter pilot jock, too. Mm-hmm. Word of Chuck's uh, movement is even getting to the point where athletes in the USSR are starting to join the protest. I think there's someone says that there's over 200 people signed up, including a number of athletes in the Soviet Union. They're no longer doing their profession. And again, it gets to a one point where someone on the TV says professional sports as we know it has been brought to a standstill. Because no athletes are playing and all the leagues are shut down. It's like the, the, the really sad years of the NBA lockout or the baseball lockout or the hockey lockout all combined together. Uh, and there's probably like ESPN Ocho is doing, you know, world championship darts and trick shot bowling again. <laughs> dodgeball. But maybe they, maybe even the dodgeball players are protesting. We don't know. Uh, but we do know that the U.S. president, uh, he's starting to hear the news and he wants to talk to Chuck. So he flies Chuck to D.C. They have this kind of fun chat about why uh, nuclear weapons are actually pretty important and about how people just have different perspectives. Uh, you know, hey, look, I'm the previous president. I'm about to negotiate this arms control treaty with the Russians. And if you make us look weak by thinking that the people are just going to give up nuclear weapons anyways, I'm not going to be able to convince them to give up theirs. They want me to tell you that you're jeopardizing our country by not playing Little League baseball. Now, they're honest men. They believe that stuff. Of course, I'm a sports fan. And uh, the way things are going, next season looks like a total washout. But that's no reason to tell an honest person to stop doing what he feels in his heart is right. Well, son, I'm in ongoing negotiations with the Soviet premier about nuclear weapons. And when you negotiate, the other guy is always judging your strength. They think I'm strong only if they think that the people of this nation are going to back me up. Now, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that you're destroying our country, but I am telling you that you're making it harder for me to get rid of nuclear weapons. And that's the truth. Chuck Chuck says no. He says he's going to continue to do the protests. And I think that was great because the movie really does show that both Chuck and uh, Amazing Grace and the president, they have different views. And all of these views can be right depending on your perspective. It's, it's very nuanced. You have to try to work through this. And that's kind of great because nuclear policy is hard. People who are super confident about one way or the other when it comes to these kinds of uh, weapons and the deterrent systems and whether or not they fail or not always are kind of, to me, scary either one way or the other. Um, but I think it's just really good that a movie does balance that out a little bit, although it does end with nuclear weapons being eliminated. But I think at this point in the film, I'm glad that it, the president is not a caricature. Yeah, I think it's I think you like you finally get the rounding out of the arguments, right? Like this is this is sort of what the movie is designed to grapple with. And I think that I think I'll call him President Peck because he doesn't have a name in the movie. Yeah. But he says something he sort of gestures wildly and says, like, they believe in that stuff. And I think he's referring to nuclear deterrence. Yeah. Um, and essentially 
the, the sort of deep point he's making about negotiations being boxed in is sort of interesting, right? Because you have Chuck essentially starting these movement, this this movement in the in the country and then movements all over the world, which really may have been a motivating factor to get President and the Soviet Premier together to talk. But now that you're seeing the movement grow and you're seeing citizens turn against the concept of having nuclear weapons, yeah. it's actually making it hard for him to finish because you know, it, it's hard to maintain that leverage when it's very clear your nation isn't behind the idea of maintaining nuclear weapons. So you can't use that threat um, effectively during the actual talk. So as a former State Department employee, as, <laughs> as you are as well, I, I took a particular interest in this and thinking through it. But um, yeah, it was interesting. I mean, I, it, like you said, this this was sort of the piece of the the puzzle that was missing, sort of the other side um, that and then finally at this White House meeting, you get you get Chuck and the president together, and it kind of makes it clear where the debate space is. But this work we're doing, these negotiations, they're more important than those feelings. So I am going to ask you to get out there and start striking out hitters again. What do you say? Sir, I can't. Well, it's a tough call. We're pretty partial to the right of free speech in this republic. But there's a saying, Chuck, that the First Amendment doesn't give anybody the right to rush into a crowded theater and yell fire. Sir, what if there is a fire? I wish there was one more viewpoint uh, in favor of nuclear deterrence in the in the movie, just so that it is a, a more well-rounded conversation, because what we get is Johnny B. Good and counter-protesters and those kinds of things. I'm not saying there needs to be like a Herman Kahn or a Dr. Strangelove person there. Um, there doesn't need to be a Bridge Colby uh, having a conversation about why nuclear deterrence. Like, there doesn't need to be one of those, but just maybe a military person who talks about the mission or someone who just has a different perspective on why these things need to exist. Because it kind of almost seems, from the U.S. president's perspective, he's not even a fan of nuclear weapons. He wants to mm -hmm. do, you know, get them down. He just doesn't know how. I think there would have been a little bit better there, but it does. It's better than most of the films that I watch uh, that, that touch on these particular topics. So the next scene we see, uh, as we mentioned, the, the agent, Jamie Lee Curtis, wants Mason Grace to come back to the team so he won't be threatened anymore by Alexander Jeffries. And then there's this very weird scene. Uh, I think it's maybe the worst scene in the movie where Amazing Grace confronts uh, Jeffries in a sauna. Like he finds him in a sauna uh, and confronts him. They're both in towels, and he's kind of argues and says, "Look, you need to back off of me. Stop uh, threatening me." He says he doesn't trust anybody with their finger on the nuclear trigger, including Jeffries and his crew. Weirdly, yells at Jeffries and says, "If you don't back off, I'm going to see you in hell." Well, this is the this is sort of like where the movie straddles A and B movie. I think is like you feel like they they need to have this '80s like businessman in a sauna scene, just like they needed to have the '80s double-breasted suit, mm -hmm. bunch of rich people just sort of standing around watching ESPN and talking about the, their their the stock prices going down. It just felt it felt kind of out of place. Seemed strange for grace to go all the way back to boston just to do this um maybe he wanted the miles you know he does have an experience right after this back on an airplane yeah exactly um that's <laughs> that's where we're headed and i think uh, the one quote i think from alexander jeffries that was interesting he calls the the public uh the great beast mm. and i guess it's grace that says you know drop the leash or something to that effect i i found the dialogue to be a little over the top <laughs> this yeah, whole yeah. scene again is one of those scenes where especially when you get to the next scene it's kind of like they didn't need to spend five minutes in the sauna 
I could have gotten through the movie without it, but <laughs> but we should we should get to the the sort of climax here, or the real sad point in the movie. Yeah, so Amazing Grace is in a, on a on a jet. He's on a chartered jet, and he's on the phone. He's got a plane phone, uh, talking to Jamie Lee Curtis, and this is where the I think Alex English is acting, uh, which is actually not bad in the film, but his his positivity comes across as a little bit odd. I guess this jet came out of your pocket. Thanks. Jet? Yeah. You ordered a Cessna. I begged for a jet. And you said I couldn't afford it. So? <laughs> so thanks for changing your mind. I didn't send a jet. You're on a plane I didn't send. Oh, God. Lynn, listen to me. It may not be what you think. And then the plane just explodes. Yeah, my notes were essentially, hold on a second, Tim. So the, the expectation here is he's just going to get murdered because he says, yeah, he's, yeah. he's like, I'll just go talk to the pilot and, you know, we'll, we'll land at the next place. And then the plane just explodes. And I'm thinking, oh, OK, so he's murdered. Flight crew murdered. Now this is what makes the movie a bit over the top, right, is, is this sort of scene, which, again, as we talked about a little bit before we started recording, um, there are probably a lot of different ways to handle this. Mm-hmm. I don't know that. And, and like you said, his acting was pretty good throughout this movie. So it would have been nice to keep him around for the rest of the movie. But, yeah. you know, this is what happens. This is how evil uh, Alex Jeffries is. Well, he just he turned him into a martyr because uh, the media is talking to Chuck outside of the house. It's a really sad scene when he finds out about what happened to his, his close friend. There's a really good line in this film where he says that he's very sad about his friend, Amazing Grace, and he's sad about, you know, there's so much death in this world. And he mentions death buried underneath the ground, and we deny that it exists. And I thought that was actually a really great, well-written line about his perspective on nuclear weapons and bunkers under the ground and the kind of devastation that they can unleash. And then Chuck decides, you know what? I don't want to talk anymore about any of this protest. And he doesn't want to talk anymore at all. He goes basically on a silent protest. He's refusing to talk. Yeah, which I think is great. It actually adds to the movie to have less Chuck dialogue. And I think you have... And what you see and how this sort of unfolds is, again, Chuck Chuck is the first mover here. You see the other movements across the world start to pick up on this, too. So it does. It isn't just one annoying kid who's not talking anymore. It ends up being everybody. And, you know, at first glance, you would think, hey, that's not so bad. A bunch of 12-year-olds around <laughs> the world aren't talking as much. But in reality, I mean, this really starts to affect the foreign governments, obviously the teachers in those countries, yeah. and uh, the development of these kids, their education. And I think the the next scene you get is Chuck in the classroom. This teacher clearly, by the way, not flexible for Chuck's political views no. <laughs> as she throws him out of the class for not speaking. But you finally see what I've been waiting for. And I think oh, probably what you had noticed is that for the most part, Chuck's friends, his peers were kind of like, what is this guy doing? Like, mm-hmm. I don't like Chuck. I don't know. Why is he, why is he making us lose the baseball game? He made us miss states, whatever. And here you actually see the kids stand up with Chuck in solidarity and they all they all leave the classroom. Yeah, they don't they, they all refuse to talk. And this becomes, as you mentioned, a global effort where children around the world are not talking. And it's getting to the point where they, they mention like 
my grandkids aren't talking to me anymore. Uh, you know, you're you're a, you're a father. Like, what happened if uh, all of a sudden your child starts protesting, not like one of what, what are they going to get for breakfast or what you're making them do their homework, but for some sort of a world issue, and they just don't talk to you anymore. I imagine that's going to be pretty impactful. Yeah, I mean, I look, I, I'd probably tell them I already work in nuclear policy. So, you know, <laughs> I'm not sure what more you want me to do. What if, what if they say they're going to not talk anymore until we completely remodernize uh, the entire nuclear triad? Hey, I'm a fence sitter here. You know, I'm <laughs> challenge accepted either way. I don't think anything is going to happen that my kids are protesting about. So what that's going to lead to is a lot of silence in my home. And, oh. <laughs> um, you know, maybe I can get some more potting done that way. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, exactly. You can watch uh, more NBA games uh, if there's no one talking in the background. Well, the, so th this is getting to the point where the U.S. president, you know, President Peck is now starting to debate his uh, advisors about whether or not the nuclear policy movement, this anti-nuclear movement, will have legs. And they mentioned that previous movements have failed. They would they would be really loud and then they would be quiet again. Uh, but this seems to be something disrupting the negotiations with the Russians. This is a really great point. The One of the advisors recommends that the president... I think we need Chuck Murdoch on this. I think we symbolically dismantle that silo he visited. I think you go there. It's your show. You get the kid on TV with you. You tell the nation this thing has redoubled the commitment of the adults of the world. You tell the kid the world is grateful. They're going to keep things mostly the same, but this is going to be like a way to get Chuck uh, to stop. And Chuck, uh, you know, the impression that he made on the president is clear. The president says... I've heard all these ideas, but not the one I actually do want to hear. And he gets on the phone and he calls uh, the Russian leader who comes now to, I forget where they went to. They went to like a Camp David-like place. Yeah, I assumed it was in Montana or it was like Jackson Hole, Wyoming or something like that. That seemed to be where it was. I mean, one of the other things the advisors, um, backing up a bit, the, the advisors talked about how the movements are destabilizing relations between the U.S. and NATO, the U.S. and the Soviet Union. Uh, I was trying to, I think it's worth unpacking this a little bit, yeah, just yeah, again, coming from our diplomatic backgrounds here. It does seem like it's making, you know, the leadership in those countries mad, certainly. And so one of the things I'm wondering, um, and again, the, the movie doesn't get into this in this scene, is, you know, our allies starting to get nervous because they see this growing disarmament movement. They're worried about the U.S. not upholding its extended deterrence commitments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's the sort of U.S.-NATO instability that's happening. No one's kids are talking, and, uh, uh, you know, apparently this is a really bad thing, but it's, it's affecting the relationships not just between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, who have been on negotiations for a while, but also the U.S. and its allies. You start to get a sense of, well, if this were to happen, if this were to be something that would be sustained, I could see this being finally something that may move people to do something. And it, yeah. and it, and it does. You know, the U.S. president asked the Russian leader, is there an opportunity for us in this crisis? And they come up with a plan and uh, Chuck and the president meet up again. Chuck is not talking uh, it's implied that they're not on Air Force One, but they're on a smaller plane. President says that uh, the United States and the Russians will dismantle, they get really specific about this, dismantle 15% of its strategic nuclear capacity that year. And every, in the course of seven years, our entire nuclear arsenals will no longer exist. And then he turns to Chuck and says, what do you think of this? You know, what is your response to this? Please uh, let me know what your, what your, either your nuclear policy uh, guidance is, or do you, which this, would this be enough to get you to start talking and start throwing curveballs again? Well, this is where Chuck has become like the Jim Timby of, you know, nuclear expertise in this movie, right? I mean, and I think in this scene, Chuck's dad is there too. Yeah, yeah. And you actually see, he almost steps in as sort of a, hold on, if you want to talk to, to Chuck, you got to talk to me first. Yeah, yeah. And. 
the the salient political point he makes is this isn't going to be the same president in seven years. How do we know that this agreement's still going to be in force? I mean, I think this calls for a sequel, frankly, if the movie ended here, but yeah. of course it doesn't. But yeah, Chuck Chuck sort of nails this point, which is sort of you, you know you're not going to be the president in seven years, and a lot can happen. Did that happen uh, any time recently, where some sort of major nuclear deal was negotiated? We kind of thought that certain problems were were not solved, but you know better, and then elections happen. Elections happen and they elections matter. Get out and vote, people. Chuck's dad makes this kind of point on uh, a lot can happen. And if Chuck lets up pressure now, which is essentially what the president is asking him to do, what's to say that he'll, he'll hold up his end of the bargain? So this is where you have some coercive diplomacy going on. Absolutely. He says he's not going to join POTUS to announce his decision. And he says, nope, not going to keep talking. And he writes this down on a sheet of paper. Yes. Yeah, that's right. And it's official now. <laughs> Uh, and this is where the, the film quickly wraps up, but we get some scenes with the professional athletes, all the friends of, uh, Amazing Grace. They find out who owned the jet that was chartered, uh, that, that where Amazing Grace died on. Of course, these evildoers are good, but they're not that good. Like they still use the same chartered jet that, that they own and there's a record for. And they pledge to bring news about this guy, Alexander Jeffries into the open. So what do they do? They... Their Twitter is not there yet. They can't. They don't call a press release. They do something very eighties. Goodyear blimp. The Miami Dolphins. <laughs> Hot dog McNally has this brainstorm. He wants the Goodyear blimp in it, and it basically says, you know, Alexander Jeffries, we know who you are, or something to that effect. But this scene started with Jamie Lee Curtis basically putting together a scheme to like kill this guy with polonium or something. Yeah, she's... I, basically, I know people who can make this like a slow and painful death and you don't really see the facial expressions from the athletes but everyone kind of like says yeah or we could shine a light on what's <laughs> happening so you know, everyone kind of agrees with the latter and they move forward with the goodyear blimp plan outside of a what looks like jeffrey's penthouse or office building yeah it's not 100 percent clear if the blimps have other messages than we know who you are alexander jeffrey's uh, they, I don't know if it's like Alexander Jeffries owned this plane. This is the plane that killed Amazing Grace. <laughs> but it's implied that there is this national campaign of, of Goodyear blimps all across the United States uh, that are displaying these messages. And it gets to the point where the 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 U.S. The FBI's found him, right? They, yeah, the they, FBI's they... found him. But they can't prove it. Uh, the CIA can't prove it. The FBI can't prove it. Uh, but we're in a really bad situation here. Um, so the president gets on the phone, calls Alexander Jeffries. I think they say he's at one thirty in the morning, wherever Alexander Jeffries is at. And this scene, you only hear part of the conversation, the president's side. And he just says, like, Mr. Jeffries, we've never met. You recognize my voice? Good. As of tomorrow morning, you will divest yourself of all financial holdings of companies public and private. This will include your immediate resignation of all directorships and offices, as well as the sale of all stocks held by you at the market price as of tomorrow's opening. The FBI, the IRS, and every agency under my authority will be on your tail for the rest of your life, you son of a bitch. And that, I guess, works. I don't know. <laughs> You know, I don't think presidents are allowed to do this. Uh, this strikes me as something that uh, Congress would have something to say about. I mean, he basically threatens Jeffries and tells him to get rid of all his money um, or else. He doesn't say get rid of his money. He says divest. So it's like that means sell your stock. So you still have money. You well, I don't know. It, it's not important. 
Uh, yeah, I know, but it, well, it is in a way, right? It's sort of you know he's basically saying like here's the good option, and you don't want to hear the bad option, mm-hmm. right? And that's the last we hear from Alexander Jeffries. Well, we do hear from the Joint Chiefs, and they say that uh, the United States and Russia, like the military uh, command and control system, you know, the the twenty year olds uh, who are in the silos, they are all joining the protest movement, and they said that we can't guarantee that the missiles will be launched anymore. People want their children back. I think they say, uh, so we get to the point where the president's like, all right, we're going to do something crazy. So the president shows up in Chuck's bedroom, like literally sitting on Chuck's bed one day and shows him uh, the, the the nuclear disarmament agreement. They, they just decide to get rid of their nuclear weapons. And now Chuck is this good enough for you. We've got, we're going to get rid of them fast. They don't, they don't go into the detail anymore. Baseball season begins in April, right? No problem. Well, you remember what the agreement was called, right? I mean, he opens the leather folder, and basically the text there says "Agreement on Total Nuclear Disarmament," which you know that's that's a pretty clear name. We know what that agreement does. Again, another interesting, you know, the president just showing up again in Chuck's room or showing up at Chuck's house, showing up in Chuck's town. Yeah, uh, he really wants this vote. I don't know if Montana is a battleground state <laughs> in, in the sort of film universe, but yeah. um, he's working really hard. So when Chuck's 18, he's going to vote for President Peck. Um, God, you hope so. Or, no, he's a he's a Nader he's a Nader guy. Definitely a Nader guy. Likes to shake things up. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you you do find out here essentially Chuck over the course of what doesn't seem that much time, a matter of months, has knocked out the overarching objective of the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty. It's implied that this is a global treaty, and eventually, right? Like. The, everyone's going to get involved. It's not just the U.S. and the Russians. At this point, Pakistan is not open with their nuclear weapon, but they have a program. India has tested a peaceful nuclear device, but that's just as close as you can get to an actual weapon. Uh, China is a nuclear, recognized nuclear power. Israel has probably uh, gotten pretty far advanced in their program. You know, you got the British, you got the French. Um, the French, this is the part that I don't, I never will buy a movie that, that talks about global nuclear disarmament unless it can convince me that the French decide to get rid of their weapons. Uh, I, I don't buy it. But apparently in this movie they did. So all of this stuff can, comes together. And uh, even the South Africans apparently have gotten rid of, you know, their weapons. So this yeah, is partic- particularly a, a movie that has this sort of like Little League MacGuffin and is based in Montana. I just don't see the French signing up for a disarmament treaty born of these circumstances. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I mean, to your point, yeah, this is this is essentially saying, you, you know, you won, Chuck. You, we we did it all now, like, you know, and the movement. Everybody wants their kids to start talking again. So it's just a couple of months later, because I think basically when baseball season were to start up again in April, it's uh, it's it's opening day, and uh, Chuck is is comes out to the the mound to pitch in his little league baseball game. Uh, who is in attendance? But you know, the, the U.S. president and the, the the Russian leader is there. Uh, there's celebrity athletes watching from the stands. Everybody's doing the three finger salute, which was the famous salute that uh, Amazing Grace would do. It's not exactly the Boy Scout salute or the Katniss Everdeen uh, salute from Hunger Games. It's kind of this weird. It's basically just the number three that yeah. he puts up there. Uh, it's not as good as you know anyone else. I think uh, Steph Curry does a, a three right. type thing. Three fingered salutes. Generally speaking, uh, this is a pretty checkered history. Mm-hmm. <laughs> different certain countries and movements that have used it are not necessarily ones that Chuck would subscribe to. But I, I encourage people to look up the various three-fingered salutes. But it is clear that you know w- what the three-fingered salute means in this context, which is yep. uh, nuclear disarmament. And yeah, I mean it's a pretty good uh, 
the stands are filled. You see a lot of you saw a lot of uniform military. You see mm-hmm. a lot of uh, our favorite athletes like Hot Dog McNally, uh, the president and the Soviet premier. Is it implied at this point you and you infer that nuclear weapons are now gone, like or at least they're at Pantex and being dismantled? Well, so this is the line that Chuck had, right? I mean, uh, earlier on is he wanted these things, he wanted it done. He was not going to stop the movements, which, Mm -hmm. by the way, at no point was he shown to be organizing or commanding these movements in any way. He's just sort of this kid in Montana who's not talking to people and not throwing baseballs. Right. um, And everyone's just copying him. But he made it pretty clear earlier in the movie that, like, no, that the the work of disarmament has to be done before I will return to my normal 12-year-old life. Um, Mm -hmm. So I have to imagine... You know, and I think President Peck, as I've been referring to him as in the in the bedroom scene, which is probably the worst possible way to describe that discussion about the treaty that he had in Chuck's room, mm-hmm. basically said, like, this will be done by baseball season. Right. He was kind of asking, he was like, when do you start again? April. But it sort of implied, I think, that disarmament has happened before the game starts. And uh, that we get the last uh, black uh, screen and some white text on it. And it says, wouldn't it be nice? And that's quote by Amazing Grace, which I, I remember you said it's is what he says earlier to the dad. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of where the movie ends. It's very on a very positive note, although uh, it's unclear at this point if Chuck is still a good baseball player because it's not clear that he's practiced in this time period. Maybe there was a, a training camp, a spring training that he that he went to before this. I just imagine he needs Tommy John surgery like immediately after his first pitch. Uh, the other aspect of this game, the baseball, the, the the little league matches, they they call Chuck's team America's team, and then the Twin Falls team is just kind of like uh, the the Twin Falls, whatever the Jackals or something, whatever they're called. It's kind of like, man, if you were from Twin Falls, like you kind of get boned. I mean, you're just sort of like there as a prop, like the Washington Generals are for the Harlem Globetrotters <laughs> in this last game. But I don't know. Anyway, so the good feelings are supposed to be running over everything and overloading your senses at this point in the movie, which again sort of ends with this as the last scene, as you mentioned. It'd be ironic if the team they played against was like the Albuquerque Isotopes. (laughs) 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 And like that was who they played at the end. They're like, oh man, it's what's worse. The, at this point in the movie, having your team mascot be the Isotopes or, you know, the Redskins or the, the, the Indians or something. I don't know. We'll see. Well, that's not what we're going to talk about here. So that's the end of the movie. I think we uh, we covered stuff pretty well, but there's still some nuclear points I think that we can really dive into uh, with this film. I, I had a couple. I'm sure you have some too. I w- wanted to talk a little bit about nuclear disarmament movements and and the role of athletes in our in real life uh, for those uh, particular movements. And I also think it would be kind of interesting to talk about you know nuclear disarmament negotiations. That's something that you are tracking uh, maybe more on the arms control sense, but that's one of the, your, your areas of interest. Uh, so I really want to get your thoughts on how this plays out, how it could play out. What are some of the things that uh, President Peck and, and Chuck should be looking for uh, if they were to follow through with this particular policy? So I think that'll, that'll be kind of fun to get into uh, in the next couple of minutes here that we have. Um, sure. So for the nuclear disarmament movements and the role of athletes, you know, the big question I have here at the beginning before we get into the details here is does this movie do justice to anti-nuclear you know weapon protests some people may say yeah it actually does because it makes them look like they don't know what they're talking about it's a bunch of celebrities just looking for attention uh it's people who don't understand why we need these weapons and they they don't want to make the hard decisions about deterrence and all of that or you can be someone who says you know no i don't think that they do a very good job because it makes it look like those people aren't actually caring or concerned about these really serious questions that these people have thought about this they have alternatives they want to start a movement that provides different perspective all of those topics before we get into the details of what real life uh anti-nuclear movements did in the 60s 70s 
70s and 80s. Uh, did you have any quick impressions about how this movie portrays? Uh, I would sort of put myself on the side of I don't think the movie does justice to the nuclear movements we know um, that actually happened in the 80s. I, I think it, it, it draws attention to them in a way that I think is important, and that was the whole point of the movie. But the organization, the, the details of the messaging, all of the, there was some hard work that went into sort of doing these in sort of in a national level, yeah. at a local level, and in a worldwide level. And the movie really brushes past all that. And part of that is because Chuck is not an organizer. He's not trying to organize a movement. He is just one kid doing something, and everyone is sort of following his example, which, of course, historically, I'm sure that those some of these movements may have been started by just a person with an a one idea mm-hmm. um but they usually get some staff and they get organized i think to really take advantage yeah there's there's like a few scenes of the athletes on the phone trying to i guess recruit other athletes uh but not much more beyond that yeah that's right i think um and again like i think touching more on sort of the more organized movements of of the 80s or even today you know to the extent that athletes and celebrities are involved they by and large are not the people who are sort of running the show they're sort of featured right on the pamphlets and the brochures and they give speeches and um because their celebrity can draw more attention to the movement and the purpose of the movement it's not usually you know hot dog mcnally who's trying to yeah, yeah. um make the signs for the the march in front of the state house or anything like that exactly and that's perfectly fine you know people can be concerned about these things but if they're they don't have to be uh grassroot activists they don't have to know how to do all these things you get people that that can do this and and we're very successful for this and in in june 1983 upwards of a million people marched in new york city for an end to nuclear weapons until the women's march uh in 2017 it was the largest protest ever uh in the united states at one time and the the movement's goals were were varied but they often included things like a freeze on nuclear proliferation a uh, disarmament efforts, whether it was multilateral with multiple countries, uh, just the U.S., who cares what everyone else does? We need to get rid of them for moral reasons or security reasons. Could be bilateral, U.S., Russia, U.S., China, or any sort of combinations of those. Some people protested military budgets. They said they should be reduced and they should be given to causes like education, health care, uh, building roads at home. Very, you know, connected to a very pop- populist movement as well with nuclear weapons. Uh, and then there were some of them people, some people were just also anti-nuclear energy. You know, anti-nuclear everything, and a lot of that kind of all got brought together. Uh, and I, I wish the movie would have done justice, or at least referenced other real-life nuclear movements that existed. People like uh, that ran the National Committee for a Sane Nuclear Policy, uh, the Women's Strike for Peace, Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, or CND. Greenpeace was heavily involved in this. Women's Action for Nuclear Disarmament, or WAND. International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War. Nuclear Weapon Freeze Prevention Campaign. A lot of these, there's a lot of movements that have very particular perspectives on these topics, and sometimes they were great. Sometimes they, were, they had a lot of successes. They Through through this movement, they were able to stop atmospheric nuclear testing. Uh, they were able to sustain a feeling that, you know what, nu- using nuclear weapons, and they're not they're not just like large bombs. They're categorically different. There's a taboo against their use. A lot of the reasons why we have that taboo today is because of this. And uh, all this stuff was was big. And you see some of these groups still today, as well as new groups like Global Zero, which got started a couple years ago. Uh, you have a, a group that just won the Nobel Peace Prize, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or, or ICANN. You know, these groups... They have a lot of different perspectives, and sometimes that was great, you know, big tents of advocates, organizations, uh, but it's also sometimes, you know, what I think the movie kind of mentions is 
when you have a big group like this, it can kind of become a little inarticulate. And what are the different views? It's hard for these groups who sometimes may not be aligned together on other topics, but they're here today. I wish the movie did a little bit more justice because it seems like it cared about these topics. And it would have been kind of interesting to hear, to see a little bit more on this. You know, before I turn it back over to you, I wanted to mention a few of the tools that people would use. You know, they would do things like lobbying political leaders, whether it's their elected congressional leaders in Washington or even the ones you know, the city council, their their mayor, their the the governor, those all of those different perspectives, they would they would lobby those individuals and try to get them to change uh, their positions. They would lobby business groups to stop supporting either the nuclear weapon enterprise in, in different ways. They would do mass protests, they would do public education campaigns, they would boycott businesses, they would do art displays, music, and one of the most interesting ones is local ballot initiatives. Uh, so they would do a local ballot initiative in your town and you would say, even it even though it's symbolic, we decide, you know, we don't want nuclear weapons in our hometown and they would do these initiatives to try to get a position so that a, a general feeling would start from their town then it would kind of work its way up you know a, a grassroots effort uh, i think i wish the movie did a little bit of this but it does hint at this the power of these kinds of activities in thinking about the bigger message to take away here how, how we can think about the movie in the context of the actual nuclear disarmament movements which took place in this time frame you know, this movie from 1987 as we know uh, was when INF negotiations were concluded and the treaty entered into force the next year. It, it's important to go back to Reagan, I think, and how he won uh, his election for his first term and then how he transitioned from you know, having this hawkish reputation, essentially calling, calling Carter weak, and that was part of how he ran and won. You know, Interestingly enough, Kennedy did the same thing when he won yeah. um, and was running against Nixon and blaming Eisenhower for allowing for a missile gap. I mean, this is when the Sputnik was in, in space first and the Soviets were winning the space race and everything. But, you know, when Reagan, at halfway through his first term, he had an opposition party in the House of Representatives. He had greatly increased defense spending. Cold War was tensions were still rising with the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. There were no negotiations taking place because Reagan essentially had um, believed uh, and came in the committee of present danger, and there was no reason to talk to the Soviets who couldn't trust them. That all changed pretty quickly. You know, the House of Representatives endorsed a freeze on producing nuclear weapons in 1983, and you started to see Reagan's political advisors say, you know, hey boss, we need to start thinking about. your upcoming re-election because um, the rest of the country was becoming a little bit more dovish and you're standing out a little bit more with your rhetoric about the Soviets. And so, you know, you had this this sort of eagerness to, to restart armed control talks, which we knew, um, you know, at the time, no one really knew what would they would end up being these sort of significant reductions for the first time, deep reductions in nuclear weapons um, in both countries. Um, an interesting tidbit, and this comes from a foreign policy article from a few years back. There's this quote about from Colin Powell, who was a national security advisor for Reagan um, at the end of his second term, that uh, Reagan had actually been deeply affected by the film uh, The Day the Earth Stood Still. It was a movie in 1951, mm-hmm. Central Premises. Uh, you might have done this in a podcast about it, the aliens are, warn- are warning the citizens of Earth that unless they stop using war to settle disagreements, that the the sort of superpowers in the galaxy, people far, mm-hmm. far more technically advanced than the, us little humans, would just destroy the planet. And so that's why Reagan always kind of talked about 
he sort of invoked alien invasions as a reason for the U.S. and the Soviet Union to overcome these kind of differences and get rid of nuclear weapons. So, you know, these sort of he had this sort of like latent anti-nuclear view inside him. And then you had movies in the 80s that I know you've done, like War Games, the, the day after. And these movies had a profound effect on him. Yeah, absolutely. We haven't done the day after yet because of, of two main reasons. One, I'm waiting for a good uh, hook and a good... Um, you know, just the right moment to do that movie. Same with Doctor Strangelove, but also because I don't really like it. I think it's kind of a dumb movie uh, in the in the culture of nuclear weapons. But I cannot deny the impact that it's had on people, uh, as well as you know, as Reagan, as you mentioned, he said he saw that movie. He was terrified uh, of the of the images. And one of the main the premise of that movie is is that what is the actual geographic center of the United States? It's actually, pretty close to being in Lawrence, Kansas. And in Lawrence, Kansas, a small town, you're like, why would you think that this would nuclear weapons would touch them? Well, they're not very far from missile bases and Air Force bases. And it shows you that even in this small town, this stuff can happen. So according to the book by Kyle Harvey, uh, which is American Anti-Nuclear Activism, 1975 to 1990, the TV film broadcast of The Day After in 1983 launched a huge anti-nuclear movement of locals in Lawrence, Kansas, which is a setting for that film, as we mentioned. Uh, They rose up against nuclear weapons. They rallied around their small-town heartland values to protect their community from the unnecessary risk of, of nuclear war and nuclear conflict. And this effort included local opinion polls, ballot initiatives to call on nuclear disarmament and a nuclear free zone in their communities. You know, of course, it's not legally binding on the federal government. It doesn't affect what President Reagan uh, did in his negotiations or his nuclear policy. But to these people, it demonstrated, you know, their local interests in these issues that are normally only discussed by people like us, nuke nerds, nuke, nuke policy people, uh, the military, and a couple others. So this was to show, look, people are concerned about this. And they had this campaign that was called Enough. And it said, that in a democracy, we are all responsible for pushing the button. And I think that is an amazing message that some people are trying to get aware again, that you as a citizen are not just someone who can be, oh, I watched a few nuclear movies and I'm scared. Or, you know, there's this latest tweet about nuclear conflict with North Korea uh, or, you know, how can what could we possibly do about this? But no, you actually have the the not only the the ability but you have the right uh and the duty to play a role in having a message on these most very you know very dangerous things uh in 1983 uh in april uh soviet union athletes were invited to participate in relay races in lawrence kansas is where we're going to start to talk a little bit about what the the role of athletes in this and they call these things the the friendship relays and it was an initiative to improve relations between the u.s and the soviet union and and press reports at the time implied that the mayor of lawrence kansas invited reagan and and drop off to his hometown for peace talks uh which is kind of funny little maybe that's where they got the idea for the ending of the film Uh, but the mayor of lawrence kansas said that citizens in his town were expressing their communal views and fears of nuclear danger because each each side has enough to destroy the other many times over. Every community is a potential target. You know, these things started in in this group called Athletes for Peace. Uh, there were a bunch of you know very prominent athletes, and they were discussing the danger of nuclear weapons. They would do public service announcements. They would do radio and TV. They organized conferences, fundraisers, marathons, bikeathons, peace trips between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. So athletes were also very involved throughout this process. So the idea of people, you know, in the movie, athletes like... Hot Dog McNally and Amazing Grace, it's not that crazy that they would be involved in this process. It's just the movie presupposes that this would 
lead to a larger global movement as opposed to, you know, in our reality, it did some things, but it didn't result in nuclear disarmament. Sort of going back to um, the Reagan point here, um, this is all happening, right, at a time for a reason. And it sort of all happened at the right time when and the movie sort of doesn't make this as uh, doesn't sort of draw the linkage this clearly. But you if you go back to this period of time, like you do see this sort of government not really interested in doing anything with the Soviet Union in terms of nuclear reductions, is interested in building more better right. nuclear weapons. You have these movements taking place. The government turns turns around and decides to start talking. These talks lead to something better than expected, which is actual reductions. And one of the other points I wanted to make is this sort of, you know, when, when Reagan and Gorbachev met in 1985 in Reykjavik, they came pretty close to yeah. a plan to, to just get rid of nuclear weapons, all of them, get rid of all nuclear weapons, except the hangup was uh, the Star Wars program, SDI, Strategic Defense Initiative. If not for that, this meeting that was supposed to be all of, you know, a 15 minute long handshake probably press spray type of thing ended up going five hours where the two men basically agreed that they needed to get rid of nuclear weapons. I mean, it's pretty astonishing. Obviously a missed opportunity there, but astonishing that it went from zero to that within five years with all of these um, kind of anti-nuclear movements interspersed in between, including in Lawrence, Kansas, maybe the most significant yeah. one. Yeah. And, um, you know, that did that those those talks, even though they didn't result in, you know, unilateral nuclear disarmament before uh, spring training, it did result in, you mentioned the INF Treaty, the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, which eliminated an entire class of missiles of a certain range, somewhere between the smaller, shorter range weapons and the more intercontinental, uh, you know, get to Russia in 20 minutes kind of missiles uh, it got rid of those which were considered to be a very destabilizing force because of how quickly the missiles could get to their targets you and the sad thing is is that you know this movie is very timely because what happened on you know last friday but the united states uh, because it had announced that it was leaving the treaty it's now it's now gone no one is being held by those restrictions anymore uh, and it's 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 a it's a very dangerous and we'll have to keep a keep an eye on where things are going to be going about this of course it happened are you seeing people are your kids still talking to you are people protesting are kids still playing baseball at the end of the nba season is, is starting to get going no one is having that reaction to these things like they did uh in the late 80s which i think is a, a worth you know moving on to the next piece here because you know what did successfully happen in the movie was this disarmament negotiations uh, they happened within, you know, disarmament basically happening within less than a year. And I find uh, the whole de debate, even though it's a kind of a shallow discussion in the film, it does hit on some really serious and real life topics. You know, the idea that the suggestion by the president's aide to do symbolic gestures of arms control, uh, I thought that was that felt really real to me as something that would be a suggestion. And in some examples that I you know remember is the nuclear testing bans before the comprehensive nuclear test ban treaty which opened up for signature in 1996. And that treaty banned nuclear testing everywhere, every environment, underground, in space. It, it said anywhere you do this thing, you can't, you literally cannot do it. But there were test bans before that. People were super concerned about atmospheric testing because of the effects on the environment, the effects on people's health. Like this stuff was in the news and it was visible. So from one perspective, the nuclear test ban treaty in 1963 was good because it moved nuclear testing from the atmosphere to underground. But what it also did was it moved it out of the public eye. People stopped like having this 
strong zeal of anti-nuclear movements. Yeah, I think I think like, you know, there there is clear symbolic value to negotiating and there's always an expectation of talks taking place at all times for Americans. I think by and large, Americans like the idea of us using diplomacy to reduce the risk of nuclear war. I won't point to any polls in particular, but I'll say Cold War, you know, the Chicago Council did some polling. Um, mm-hmm. Arms control was extremely popular, you know, above 90 percent um, for the parties. And I think that by and large, that support would be there today if the circumstances were the same. So I don't think that we've all sort of reduced our intellects to a point where we don't pay attention to this if it was a crisis. It's just the crisis isn't quite as as in our face as mm. it used to be. But I think with the events of the past week, with the uh, uncertain future for arms control and certainly for the NPT and disarmament, maybe you'll start to see some of that attention come back. Um, it, it is hard to expect people to really mobilized in the same way they did around Chuck or, you know, in real life in the yeah. 80s when that pressure isn't there and it's not that obvious. And obviously part of our job is to explain this to the public, explain this to uh, people who are in a position to do something about nuclear weapons and the risks. And I think you touched on this before, but, you know, there weren't there weren't a ton of there wasn't a ton of enthusiasm for deterrence theory in this movie. That was sort of a, a part that was not played. You didn't have that. You didn't have a missileer explaining the political value that these weapons yeah. are actually political in nature that we we hope to never use them because we have these missiles. This town will not be nuked. Right. I mean, that that never really came across in the movie. And I think that's a missing element. And clearly the movie had an objective here. If you're getting Gregory Peck out of retirement, it's not to have him have a watered down message about, you know, balancing deterrence and disarmament. Um, It's clear that they wanted to drive the disarmament message here. And to your point about symbolic, uh, the sort of symbolic negotiations and the the agreements you listed, like, I totally agree. I think that these agreements are born out of compromise and you don't get 100 percent disarmament and you don't get one sided agreements, really, that there's a there's a quid pro quo negotiation that takes place. Yeah. You know, the Soviet Union may be worried about one particular n- nuclear capability that the United States has, just like we may be worried about one particular advantage they may have. So the Soviets have traditionally had these heavy liquid fueled missiles capable of carrying many warheads. And we have not. We have sought to limit them as we think they're destabilizing, given the um, the sort of use it or lose it mentality that may come with such weapons um, with so many warheads on them. Whereas the U.S. has historically adopted a more stable posture by using uh, SSBNs and a survivable retaliatory strike capability. So anyway, so like these are all the things that you don't get out of Chuck, but it's just a way of highlighting this sort of attempt by Peck to sort of whittle away at, you know, how much do I really need to do? How much do I really need to negotiate to get this kid off my back, get him back in school, get him back talking and pitching again? It would have been great if the Mad Dog, who I think was the guy who lifted uh, the the truck and said he wasn't a pacifist, if there would have been like a, um, a Jay and Silent Bob moment there where he, at the very end of the movie, like eloquently talked about why nuclear deterrence <laughs> didn't work and gave a, a 15 point tree to see on why uh, the, you know, basically didn't, if he if he turned into like Scott Sagan uh, <laughs> at that moment, that would have been a lot of fun. Yeah, but I think Mad Dog was probably the emblematic of how deterrence does work, because as soon as he put yeah, that truck yeah. up back on the street, you know, all those gross Montanans who are trying to beat up Russ and the kids and his wife, they didn't bother him anymore. 
Yeah, perfect. Um, well, so I, I want to talk a little bit here. Uh, is this the place that this movie has in in nuclear pop culture? Now, even even with the the Lipscomb nuclear trilogy of this movie, War Games, and the day after, you know, why did this movie not really take off? It has like a big cast. It's got Gregory Peck in it. It's got basketball. It's directed by a very capable director. Why do you think this movie didn't become? something that we talk about all the time. Like, why didn't this movie inspire Ronald Reagan to do his, you know, his thing? Why was it the day after? Is it because of this movie wasn't scary enough? Was it because it wasn't serious enough? Was it just, uh, well, what are your thoughts on kind of why this uh, doesn't have a more prominent place in nuclear pop culture? Uh, Because it tried to popularize the Boston Celtics. Ah, there we go. There we go. Obviously. You know, obviously we're in an audio format and people can't see that we're both wearing Lakers shirts. But that has to be reason number one. I think part of it might be there's a saturation, right, of movies in this in this time period. And the attempt in this movie to really string – it didn't focus on the scary message solely, right? It sort Mm -hmm. of tried to play at this sports and pop culture aspect um, and fold it into the sort of disarmament movement. And I think – Maybe it got a little too convoluted. I thought the combination of Little League pitcher kid starting worldwide nuclear movements combined with NBA player who takes an interest because he reads it somehow in a national newspaper in Boston combined with evil industrialists and with slick back hair and double-breasted suits (laughs) who murder the athlete for no reason later in the movie combined with meeting the president on more than one occasion repeatedly in these weird circumstances. It, It was just kind of a lot. A lot of kind of unnecessary staging for what could have been just a clear message. Whereas I think the you know the other movies you mentioned are very clear, right? They point to the annihilation that would happen in a nuclear exchange. You know what that would look like because they just try to scare you. Mm-hmm. Um, this movie doesn't try to do that as much, unless of course you are somebody who rents your Gulfstream out and is a pilot to uh, NBA agent, in which case you could be blown up at any moment by these evil industrialists who love nuclear weapons. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's now another nightmare to attach uh, to my, my, my rotating uh, list there. It is interesting. I think it's, it's because the movie does have a bit of a TV movie feel. Uh, which is weird because the day after it was a lit- an actual TV movie, but when you watch that, it doesn't come across as uh, too soap opery um, as much as as this one does, which is super weird because it is an actual film. Uh, it does have some really great moments in it. I, I think it's a better child actor would have maybe improved a little bit, uh, a few little tightening of the of the plot, and not having the you know not having Amazing Grace killed. I think, weirdly enough, would have made that a little bit more serious about it. As just his Alex English as sort of an actor, and obviously he's not an actor by trade. There was a depth to his um, performance that yeah. I think was lacking elsewhere. I thought Russ was, I think, the the actor who portrayed him, who I believe has been on um, TV shows uh, recently as well. I thought did a good job. Like clearly, there are people with acting chops there, but essentially relying on Chuck the actor yeah. who played Chuck to carry the movie, I think was um, the failing here. Especially when ha- the second half of the movie, he doesn't talk. Um, yes. It makes it easy. sort of his, his sort of stern looks for a 12 year old. Don't really carry, carry a lot of emotion. The movie uh, from a nuclear point of view, it does have some interesting things to say. Uh, but I think as a movie itself, maybe that's why it doesn't hold, you know, hold up because war games, even if it wasn't about nuclear war, you know, global thermonuclear war, it's still a good movie. 
and is very entertaining to watch. Uh, for some people, the day after, because of the fact that it is super scary and how it took place in a, you know, in Kansas of all places, uh, it really scared people to think, no, this actually could happen to me. And I think some of the other nuclear movies have that. They're good movies by themselves. Uh, and not just they're either really scary or they're good movies by themselves. And those are the things that play forward. But not talking about the new things anymore. I think uh, a real quick jaunt through what I call the parking lot movie discussion section, where I used to watch uh, movies with my friends in high school or, or middle school. And before we got back uh, in our cars to drive home or before our parents picked us up, we hung out in the parking lot and would, would talk about the film that we just saw. So uh, one or two quick questions I had here. Uh, one was, you know, how does this movie look today given the fact that we do have athletes that are heavily involved in in protests whether it's you know colin kaepernick uh protesting against you know violence against african americans in the united states um and you, and you can see the response to that uh that we've seen you know athletes not wanting to visit the white house uh after winning championships like you know the golden state warriors and all this stuff is happening how do you think the movie uh, handles those topics, you know, relative, looking back on it now in hindsight, given that some of these other athletes are, you know, continually involved in politics. I don't know many that are involved in, in nuclear debates about the INF treaty or nuclear modernization or anything. Maybe they could be at some point, but I don't know. I would love to see what this movie would look like if it was remade today. Yeah, you kind of wonder, I mean, just the, the diffusion of news stories in this kind of social media environment we live in, if when there's only several major papers and Amazing Grace picks one up after his yeah. workout and he reads about this kid in Montana. Would that have ever shown up on his timeline today? You know <laughs> what I mean? Had to be a good hashtag campaign. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? But this is how you have to organize now. And I think so it's really hard to tell if, if that movie took place in the current times, if athletes would actually have any impact, if they'd have the opportunity to have impact because um, would they even find out about it now? You, you mentioned a couple of the protest movements, you know, LeBron James, who's now a Laker, has spoken out on political issues as well, not just on sort of race relations and police brutality, but in sort of general sort of governance issues as well. Athletes, though, have become very good at using social media platforms to motivate people like us, just sort of observers, fans, stands, whoever you want to, to however you want to label yourself, whether they motivate us to sort of just have more awareness, be more woke, or whether they motivate us to actually take action, which is what you saw. And, and the interesting thing is like, you know, you really didn't see as much as you saw the athletes kind of phone banking and trying to pass information around in the movie, you didn't see the sort of dedicated following for these athletes in, in sort of real time that you have today. So who knows, like maybe, you know, you could do maybe an amazing grace today um, would have much more of a profound impact because of his ability to talk to millions at the same time. If he wanted to, I think what you saw here is this sort of yeah. unbelievable random assembly of people just kind of come together, even though Chuck never really tried to get them together. Yeah, I when when uh, LeBron is done with Space Jam two, I think I would love to see a film where you know imagine like they make a joke in the movie. Well, I actually don't think it's a joke. It's a joke to us now that they say like how much money Amazing Grace did you make per year playing basketball? And he said a million dollars. And that's that's <laughs> so funny because you know we have <laughs> we have veteran minimums these days that are like three million dollars. Right. Um, LeBron James is making, you know, what is it, like 34, $38 uh, million a year. So it's it's funny to think about that. But it would be a really big deal if LeBron or another athlete were to say, you know what, I'm inspired by this person not wanting to, you know, do whatever they're doing. Like if, if <laughs> I could see this being a Twitter story that would be super interesting to see 
Uh, and I, I think this movie is actually ripe for a remake. I just don't think that the passion that people have about nuclear weapons and nuclear issues is there. But maybe the idea of the movie could happen just instead of nuclear topics, it's something else. If So we haven't seen Space Jam 2 yet. I don't know exactly what the plot is. There's an opportunity here. LeBron, get at us. Yeah. Let us know if you like the pod. We've got a new script for you. Yeah. And I also do agree with you. This movie would be better if instead of him being a Boston Celtic, he was a, a Laker or a Nick or uh, something else. That would be that would be that would make everything make sense. Yeah, that would have that would have added two stars to the rating for sure. Well, he says at one point, like, I don't even want to have those big city lights anymore. And it's like it's Boston. It's not a it's not a big city lights type place like no. Los Angeles or New York is. But I like Boston. Uh I, uh, you know, started dating my wife in Boston. So my first kiss with my wife was in the shadow of the Boston Garden. So it always will have a weird place in my heart. Um, but that, that place is not uh, filled by this film. So let's do the, Let's get into the last little bit of things we have here. Our rating system. So what we do is we always rate things consistently from one to five because that way we can compare all of our different things that we talk about consistently. But because I get super critical about the movie, I get super critical about the rating. So I tailor that. Uh, so I run the numbers here. I've, I've talked to my agent uh, and here's what we've said is, you know, we want to do one out of five pro athletes joining your barn commune because one athlete is just kind of weird if you're hanging out with that person in your barn. But if you get five, you can start up your own sports agency. You can, you know, you can uh, have your own NBA for starting five. Uh, so what would you give this movie out of one out of five pro athletes in your in your barn? Um, I think I'd give it two athletes, you know, just like kind of a, a hangout. It's not weird. It's mm-hmm. not a party. You're still in a barn, which is strange. <laughs> you know, I think um, and you may feel the same way about this. I just this movie, this movie, um, interesting as it was with the cast they had, they had real actors, they had a real director, as you pointed out. It just doesn't hold up as well, I think, because of the fear factor being missing, because mm-hmm. the maybe because we're we're both wonks. We expected a little bit more of substance. I think that I mean, I was surprised by the amount that was actually there, just given the, the billing that this movie had and what I anticipated yeah, yeah, going yeah. into it a little bit more of the sort of like reason, like the purpose of nuclear weapons and the danger they may present to this little town, I think would have been helpful because, you know, again, like you said, you had Chuck not really talking much and he clearly wasn't a nuclear expert and didn't understand a ton about these weapons other than they were bad and they scared him, which is enough for a 12 year old, I suppose, who's yeah. leading worldwide movements to ban nuclear weapons. But at the same time, it doesn't draw the viewer in who, may also not be a nuclear weapons expert and has to actually think about these things. It's hard to just sort of, as as much as the reporter in the movie Pollock takes it on faith that nuclear weapons exist and we should be okay with that, I think the viewer is expected to take on faith that nuclear weapons are bad and should just be gotten rid of, which it's easy enough for people who yeah. work in nuclear weapons to have a formed opinion on that. But I think you know, we're still at a point where I don't know if nuclear weapons are inherently evil to every single person who goes to watch this movie. So they need to, but, and they need to make that intellectual leap to really understand the purpose of this movie. I, I, I do not uh, disagree with any of that, really. Um, I hear the movie a little bit of a better score. I give it a 2.5. Um, I think it would be better without the evildoers plot, or at least do it differently, uh, without killing the Mason Grace. Uh, you can have some other way for him to continue to be involved uh, in, in this um and I also think the weird friendship hang type situation is it's just it's just weird uh, for the purpose of the film. Uh, and it sometimes pro- kind of crosses into that line of accidental comedy at points. And I don't think it was trying to do that. But I think the movie's worth watching. 
So that's why I gave it a 2.5. It's it's kind of it's not an average film. Uh, it's not one that I you get excited to go see, but I do recommend people see it, and I'd rather recommend people see that movie than movie like threads which is terrifying i don't like recommending to people i wish everybody had seen it so i can talk about it but i will never be responsible for recommending that movie to somebody uh it's your is your half of a pro athlete um isaiah thomas is that who's hanging out with you in the barn (laughs) oh geez uh poor isaiah um yeah sure yeah why not that you know (laughs) isaiah and mugsy are are just hanging out they're trying to climb up to the top of the barn um (laughs) so if people did like this movie uh, or they enjoyed this conversation or they, they are interested in certain por- portions of the kind of topics we talked about, it is where the part of the podcast before we close out where we recommend some things for them to check out. So I have four quick things. I think you maybe have a, a, something to recommend. The first thing I'll recommend is people just go out and watch the Lakers 2010 championship DVD uh, where we beat the Celtics. You know, no big deal. I think that'd be kind of fun to check out. Secondly, there's a whole bunch of books that are, were written in the 80s that were about how to talk to your children about nuclear war. And some of them are, you know, like a Dr. Spock type book where it's about how to raise your child. But there's also some interesting books that are, they're for children to read. And it's to avoid situations like this where Chuck was so paranoid about this because not everybody can start a national movement to end nuclear war. But some kids are still concerned about the idea they're learning in school about duck and cover. They're learning about nuclear war. And they're like, well, what do we do about that? So there's this great book that I want people to check out. It's by Judith Vinga called Nobody Wants a Nuclear War. It's a children's book. It's, it looks like a Dr. Seuss book. And it's about how, look, nuclear weapons are dangerous. Nuclear war is dangerous. But and people are worried about it. But we have people working on it. People are trying to stop this from happening. And it's the way you would talk to your child about even things like today when it comes to things like shootings and and other kinds of violence, you know, you don't want your child to be so scared that they sit in a corner and they never leave the house. You want them to have some sort of sense of agency and that people are concerned about it like them and that they're trying to do something in ways that maybe they can get involved that, you know, short of a, a global uh, movement. So I think that's a good book. And I'll couple, link to a few other ones that are similarly uh, inclined. Uh, I also recommend a book uh, called African Americans Against the Bomb, Nuclear Weapons, Colonialism, and the Black Freedom Movement from 2015, uh, written by uh, Vincent J. Tondi. It's a really great book. I, I did definitely re- uh, reference some of the material that he wrote about, you know, anti-nuclear movements and the role of athletes. It's a terrific book that I recommend people check out uh, on, on this topic, uh, or at least adjacent to this topic. Uh, and finally, even though I hate on the the, the Celtics, uh, I do really like this movie from 1996 called Celtic Pride. Have you heard about this one, Pernay? Yeah. Uh, I really like this movie. It stars Dan Aykroyd and Daniel Stern and Damon Wayans. And Dan Aykroyd and Daniel Stern are huge Celtics fans, like incredibly obsessed. And the Celtics are against the Utah Jazz in the NBA Finals, and they find that Damon Wayans, who's like the star athlete of the other team, he's the uh, the amazing grace. They decide to first just get him drunk so that he can't play the next day so that their team can win. And ultimately, through hijinks, uh, they end up accidentally, but then committing to kidnapping Damon Wayans. And it becomes this whole you know, weird plot about how they're going to how they're going to keep him just for the just for the first couple of games. You know, then they'll release him and let him go so that, that they'll win their championship. Uh, it's written by J- Judd Apatow and, and Colin Quinn. It's 
it's not terrible. I don't know. Maybe you think it's terrible. I like it enough as a kid. Uh, I'll recommend women and people check this out. So I, I've i got a few shorter form things, I think, um, to convey. Um, first, on the Lakers, obviously, I think people need to go back to um, 2016 highlights of Kobe Bryant's final game. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about not leaving anything left in the clip. Um, 60 points, 22 of 50 shooting. Um, this was a game in which a player took essentially every shot for his team. And I watched this game um, while I was in Geneva for the Bilateral Consultative Commission, which mm-hmm. is the implementation body of the New START Treaty. Um, I'm pretty sure this game was around a standard sort of 7.30 p.m. start time West Coast. And so that amounted to being up around 3 a.m., I think, in Geneva. But I got up. I had a. T- I was tired all day. But mm-hmm. I got to watch this entire game over NBA League Pass International Edition uh, for ten dollars or something like that. I recommend people watch it on YouTube instead of waking up at three a.m. In, in a different country to watch it. Um, that's one. Um, one of the first books I read and sort of reading about um, arms control history, um, and this sort of preceded my time even in the arms control bureau at the State Department, was uh, Deadly Gambits by Strobe Talbot. I think it is an it is a good read of sort of a um, the most interesting point in the mid 80s where um, negotiations were ongoing for the INF Treaty. And, you know, Strobe Talbot was a, a journalist at the time and um, did a really good job talking about some of the interagency sparring that took place, some of the the personalities at play, the experts at play, uh, Reagan's role in all of this. Um, which I thought I thought was very fascinating, and being a former bureaucrat and a bureaucrat at the time, um, this, this, it was all very familiar to me. But for people who sort of are more interested in the process, um, the process that President Peck used in the movie to get to the the negotiating positions that we saw throughout his various strange meetings with Chuck, who again was sort of his outside advisor for all yeah. these negotiations, um, that's a good way to get uh, an understanding. And then on Reagan more specifically and sort of the disarmament drive in the 80s, um, there are two articles I had come across in thinking about this movie. Um, one was a foreign policy piece from um, 2010 by Peter Beinart, which is called Think Again, Ronald Reagan. Um, and it talks about sort of the the sort of less hawkish side of Reagan and uh, some of the quotes I mentioned um, when talking about Reagan earlier in our kind of post-movie review um, or from this article, which I thought was a good compilation. Um, there's another article um, from 2016 in The Atlantic, which covers uh, one particular meeting that I touched on, which was this uh, Reykjavik meeting between uh, Reagan and Gorby, where they talked about getting rid of all nuclear weapons and essentially how um, it was the strategic defense initiative um, and Reagan's continued um, want to see that through that uh, ended up derailing that. So it sort of talks about how close we were um, mm. to that disarmament dream. So that that is called uh, Ronald Reagan's disarmament dream, uh, Jacob Weisberg in the Atlantic, January 1st, 2016. Um, I'll, provide, but yeah, I'll bef- provide links to all of this stuff. Oh, awesome. Thanks. Yeah, the the transcripts of those uh, Reykjavik meetings are amazing. Brene, thanks very much for a late night, two hour podcast discussion. You put your kids to sleep, and now you're talking about you know nuke movies and baseball and basketball. If people want to hear more about your thoughts on all of those different topics, where can they find uh, you and your work at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace? Sure, thanks, Tim. I had a lot of fun. Um, always happy to do spend my late nights talking about basketball 
and or nuclear weapons, um, people can find uh, me at Pranay Arvati, all one word, no spaces. Um, that is my Twitter handle. And on the Carnegie Endowment website, you can search my name and you will see some of the analysis I've done. Nice. You were recently on uh, the Carnegie podcast, right? So we'll, I'll link to that as well about talking about nuclear weapons. That's right. That We did a Carnegie podcast, part of the weekly podcast, to explain uh, arms control and current the current politics of arms control. So I did a bit of history of the Cuban Missile Crisis, where arms control started, and uh, we had a discussion with Conor O'Brien, a political defense reporter who talked about the Hill and the NDAA process, and uh, Jen Psaki does a great job hosting that, and it was nice to get to pod two times in two weeks. Well, that's good. Uh, we talked about uh, the Larry O'Brien trophy in our podcast here, and you talking about the other O'Brien over there. So it all works out well. Go Lakers. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Supercritical Podcast. If you have any suggestions for future episodes or you want to tell us what we got wrong, uh, either nuke-wise or basketball history-wise, maybe you're a Celtics fan out there, uh, there are a couple ways you can add us. Uh, you can go on Twitter. You can do Nuclear Podcast. That's where I respond to stuff. We are also on Facebook. Uh, we're on email at supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. Go to YouTube page. We're on all the places you can get your own podcasts. If you enjoyed the program and uh, you enjoy basketball, uh, talk to your basketball friends about this movie and say, after you're done watching this film, go on and, and listen to the podcast and we'll talk about the nuke side of it. So until next time, this has been Tim Westmeyer. And this is Pranay Vadi. And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we are bound to get super critical about it. Have a good one.